Welcome to Rolling Studies, podcast of the Hogwarts Professor. My name is Nick Jeffrey. I'm a writer at Hogwarts Professor, and I am joined by the Hogwarts Professor himself, Dr. John Granger. Merry Christmas, John. Yay! Not quite yet. Not quite yet. We're just <laughs> we're just coming up on it. You know. Yes, yes, indeed. Christmas Eve here in Oklahoma City. You can feel the spirit of the season here as all the rest of you depart from it. <laughs> but yeah, it's 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 a wonderful day here in Oklahoma City. I'm looking forward to church services tonight and tomorrow, and to building my yurt. I should say <laughs> I should say finishing my yurt this coming week and having it up in time for our Christmas party on Friday night. How are you? How, how is the weather in Wales? Is it wet there? A beautiful day today. So it's the first really dry, clear day we've had. Wonderful sunrise. It's epiphany uh, for us here in the Jeffrey household in South Wales. So we've packed away all our Christmas decorations uh, for this year. <laughs> Send uh, them over to us here. <laughs> Send them over to us. <laughs> well, we've got, um, we've got, I think, quite a challenging podcast today. So we're going to be using our lake and shed methodology to look at an interesting detail that we think we've picked up from the running grave. Yes. I think this, this may have been a sign of my insecurities in our relationship, Nick, and that I felt I had to do something to try to match Charlotte committed suicide. <laughs> did, did not commit suicide. <laughs> that uh, I, I had thought, well, I'm coming up with something that's, that's interesting and, you know, but yeah, this this is fun. This is fun because it, it, it gives us the opportunity again to talk about Rolling's lake concerns, Rolling's shed artistry, and an overview of Rolling's work. And I, you know, I'm obliged once we play our cheerful music. I, I I'm obliged to talk a little bit about you know the four evolutions of Rolling's study or four generations. Really haven't decided yet how, how I want to word that. Because people are asking, you know, John, you keep talking about four generations. Can you explain what you mean by that? Because it's just annoying when you talk about it without explaining it. So, yeah, let's get into this. This, this, this you know, uh, what would it mean if Robin was sterile? You know, is it possible? What signs do we have in terms of Rowling's life that would make that make sense in terms of a crisis of some kind? And, again, the artistry of it. You know, where, where do we see that in her work? Where do we see that in her concerns, her, her core beliefs? Um, all right. I'm, I'm really looking forward to this, as always, Nick. Christmas Eve. What a, what a great way to celebrate Christmas. John, so this is your theory. Uh, so what is it? What did you find in Running Grave that made you think that Robin is not able to have a child? Well, okay. The, the thesis, in broad strokes, is that Robin Venetia Ellicott will not have children with Murphy, Strike, or any other partner because she can't, at least not without some extraordinary efforts via in vitro conception and surrogacy, whatever. Now, I tried in my Substack post a month ago to explain how this infertility is possible, okay, and then to detail the late suggestions from Rowling's life and personal experience that shows she's more than familiar with this condition among women, and to share the shed literary markers in Running Grave and Rowling's other work, 
that this is indeed what she has in mind for Strike's partner. But before I get into that, I mean, it, um, before I want to go there, I want to talk a little bit about you know, the podcast is called Rolling Studies. And what do we mean by that? Is it just chatting about, you know, Rolling's latest work, what she's, where she's going with this, whether we like her characters or not, you know, kind of, you know voicing our enthusiasms and such. No, what we're really after here is to move the uh, figurative ball forward. I mean, you guys have already dropped the ball for New Year's, but anyway, this this uh, that involves understanding where we stand in terms of the progression or evolution of rolling studies. And there's 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 three or four people that have been through all these evolutions that have been major players in these things. Three immediately come to mind. Three American women. The first is Lana Whited, the editor of The Ivory Tower in Harry Potter and its updated version. And I really do hope to get her up on this because it may be the first fourth generation text that we're actually going to have. And Lana has, in every one of the four evolutions I'm going to describe, been a part of this. And so is Catherine Grimes, who teaches with Lana at, at Ferrum College in Virginia. And the other one is, is Amy Sturgis, whom uh, people that follow podcasting in Harry Potter and Corman Strike, they know Amy Sturgis because Amy Sturgis, uh, she was teaching um, at the university level, I think at Belmont University. She was the first person to offer a class. She and Michael Marr, who's at Stanford, he's the German Nabokov scholar, were teaching J.K. Rowling when only four books were in print. And she's made contributions in every of these four stages. So shout out to them. I'm the other one, you know. I'm the I'm the other guy, um, and 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 they're and I, I'll write up a, a proper post on this and talk about the the key publications, the key opinions, the key players in each one of these evolutions. But really, just to throw out what these four evolutions are, the first the first one were, were the Potter pioneers, the people that went out there, exposed themselves basically to to incredible criticism by saying that Rowling was a serious author to be taken seriously. And that she had to be understood the way we'd understand any author, you know, in terms of themes and depths of meaning and symbolism and that, this sort of thing. And that was, that was a largely, I mean, I, all the people I mentioned, uh, the three women that I mentioned, are women with PhDs in literature. You know? So, I mean, it wasn't as if it was, it was just non-academics like myself, but the great horde of academics stayed out of Potter speculation at that time because they could be embarrassed. You know, because it largely involved where Rowling was headed in the series that was in progress. And that brings us to the second evolution of Rowling Studies, which, which was when Deathly Hallows came out and we had really a, a complete text. And then we have what I call the academic avalanche. You know, that um, really everybody and their neighbor wanted to write a book about Harry Potter once all the books were out and they could say thumbs up, thumbs down on the work. It was largely positive. And that academic avalanche led to things like the conference at St. Andrews, for instance. That was, that was a real academic avalanche watershed moment. But after that wave of three, four, five years, post-Deathly Hallows, there was a, there was a pause there. Rowling's, she begins to publish again in, in 2012, 2013 uh, with casual vacancy. And then we get the third wave. And the third wave really does have a face to it, in my mind, as, as an avatar. And that's B. Gross. We, we basically have 
Generation Hex, all grown up. People that had grown up reading these books, had really cut their teeth on these texts, these long books, and had become accomplished readers and scholars. And they come at, they're, all, they're part of the academic avalanche. They're, they're, they're a piece of that. But they bring an entirely different energy to this conversation. This is, this is a, a more fun and personal part of the academic avalanche. There's no pretending here that these books are not important to the Generation Hex writers. Um, and you get that. When you, when you listen to B. Groves and her podcast, you read her posts at various spots in, in rolling fandom, you get you know, the, the fun. You, you get the excitement of a person that grew up with these books. This is an old friend to her. And then the, now we're at the fourth evolution. And the fourth evolution really is a, a, a step apart from the, the pioneers, the avalanche, and generation hex in that in the fourth generation of writers and thinkers about what J.K. Rowling is about, whether she's a good writer or not, that kind of thing, is that we're going to integrate what Rowling talked about in that 2019 interview on the BBC, where she discussed the source of her inspiration. And that source of inspiration is the lake. She invites in that part of the conversation, she says basically that all of my work, and, and she doesn't say this, but she could have, like every other author who has ever written, <laughs> is writing from their subconscious issues that, that are coming to surface. And that you really can't understand her work consequently because the inspiration is the, is the point of origin unless you understand those issues. That isn't certainly to diminish her shed artistry, though it seems that really she got less attention in that interview. She doesn't talk about what she does in the shed, but she's saying that those, those are the two mental pictures she has, the lake and the shed. Right? And that opens up the biographical elements, which in the three previous generations, while people would make gestures, and this goes back all the way to the pioneers. Philip Nell's book, which is very, very brief, um, which one of the first real academic treatments of Harry Potter, Nell discusses what bits of her biography are known. But at that point, almost none of it is known, other than the fact that she was a, a single mom on the dole and that her mother had died. We don't know anything about the dad. We don't know anything about the Orantes events in Porto, um, other than that they happened. We don't, we don't know, you know the violence involved and, and its effect on her. We don't know about the CBT. We don't understand the clinical depression becoming the suicide. You know, all that stuff was off. We didn't, we didn't know all the, the seven crises. We get that now. In the fourth evolution, that has to come really to the front. So that just like if you're talking about Vladimir Nabokov, if you don't mention the Russian Revolution, you're really not going to get Vladimir Nabokov, right? I mean, yes, there's plenty of shed. I mean, I talk about shed writers. Nabokov is it. But if you're really going to go at Nabokov raw, like just take him from the shelf and, you know, assuming his real name is Bob White rather than Vladimir Nabokov, you're going to miss a lot, right? And this Dickens in his childhood, you know, what author, you know, you know, can't you talk about in terms of their life? Agatha Christie and the fact that she studied poisons in the First World War. You just can't get at the heart and depth of the books unless you have that. Now, that can descend into gossip. I get that. And I've, I have, you know, 
I have assiduously combated <laughs> the idea of talking about Rowling's biography, even after casual vacancy came out. I go, look, any idiot can connect the dots here, right? But we're not going to do that because that's that's to ignore the the shed work. I um, I feel some some responsibility there, John, <laughs> because because I sort of tripped into Hogwarts professor, absolutely fascinated by those by those parallels. You know, like John, I'm I'm also I'm conscious of of the damage that gossip can have everything needs to be caveated with with what we know and and this is an a, an assumption but absolutely her life is fascinating and and why wouldn't you look for parallels in her work okay i can answer that question at great length but i'm not going to the, the reason that i would look for them is because the author herself said that barrier must come down okay and Besides the lake and the shed, there's one more thing that, that distinguishes, I think, fourth-generation work. And this goes to Lana White's new volume, too, is that we have enough rolling work now to talk about the opera Omnia. We, that we can talk about the complete works, and we have to look for the golden threads that run through all of it. Um, and that's not something that's been done in these three generations. Usually someone will choose something. They'll focus on the strike book. They'll focus on Fantastic Beasts, or they'll focus on this. And maybe you'll see some side allusions, like, doesn't this remind you of this part of Harry Potter and such? But it's it's not that big a deal. Now, now we've been beating down that door at Hogwarts Professor really since the Silkworm, when I you know, suggested that she was writing the series in parallel. And that's become that's become almost a given, really, in strike studies. And it requires, quite clearly, that you, you've got your, your Potter material really under, you know, you have to have some command of it. But that that idea that, you, yeah, you're going to talk about Fantastic Beasts. You're going to talk about casual vacancy. You might even talk about the Ichabod. You know, Lana White, in, in my back channels conversations with her, really wants me to reread the Ichabod. She, she doesn't. She doesn't think that Christmas Pig is really better than the Ichabod. And so I, I, you know, if Lena White tells me I need to go back to read something, I'm going back to read it. Um, but all those things have to be brought in. So that's to, to answer the questions from the Substack. Things people are like, John, you keep talking about the four evolutions or the four generations. What are you talking about? That's what I'm talking about. Rolling Studies, the podcast of Hogwarts Professor, is about this fourth generation where we're going to talk about. The lake elements, which is which is rolling biographical elements, all the caveats in place, but still, say we're we're going to look hard there to see what we can see. Now we don't have the advantage of living in 2054 <laughs> if the world exists then. But looking back and, and all the stuff we're going to learn about rolling in the next 30 years, if it's anything like all we've learned about rolling in the last five years, we're going to learn a lot, right? Um, and it, we will continue just because it's what I do. We're going to talk about the shed artistry as well. Um, but there's, and there's a bleed here. I mean, Nick and I, we pretend that he's, you know, got his scuba equipment. He lives in the lake and, and John is out in the shed, you know, with his tools. But there's overlap here. I, I talk lake and Nick talks shed. Um, this is, we just want to define those things as, as where, where our primary interests lie. Um, and, and the opera omnia, that the, the whole, the, the collect, that opera omnia means um, all of the works. That, that perspective, that kind of above the clouds perspective looking down, that's really going to be the rule going forward. I think the fourth generation really is the final generation of rolling studies. I don't see a fifth. 
because whatever we learn is just going to be an expansion on the lake and the shed. I mean, I, I mean, every time that we've said, for example, that we know every tool in her shed, we're embarrassed, right? There's something new there, which will take the mythology to an entirely different level. The ring composition is not just going to be the books or the series. It's going to be the parts inside the books. You know, it may, maybe it's the individual chapters now. I, but and there, and there may be something entirely different. There really may be something entirely different that in that shed that no one's ever discussed in rolling because she never talks about the tools in her shed. You know, even when she's pressed, she she makes kind of like the alchemy. She makes sort of hand gestures towards it, like, oh yeah, the colors. You know. And then she changes the subject to, you know, what sandwiches she prefers. I mean, it's just, it's just not, it's just, she's not, doesn't do that. Um, but there could be more there. It's still going to be, it's going to fall under these umbrellas of lake, shed, and survey of the entire collection of her work. With the fourth generation, Potter Rolling Studies really arrives at what every author and their readers, where they arrive in the end. And so we're basically, um, we're not the Potter pioneers. I don't know what you would call us, but we, I think we're the, the pioneers of the fourth generation studies. And there's, there's resistance to this. And I get it. You know, that's the thing about pioneers. You, you, pioneers aren't the people that, that settle in you know, the Sacramento Valley. And, and uh, the, the pioneers are the people you find in the desert with arrows in their backs, you know, because they die. They went too far in one direction. So we're going to make those mistakes, and we're going to risk getting the arrows in the back. I, you know, I, I fully embrace that. I, you know, I, I have, I have enough arrows surgically removed from my body from just the the Potter Pioneer era that I could, I could hold off, you know, an assault on my home with my my bow, just using all these leftover arrows. Um, that's that's fine. And I, and and the, and the folks that criticize us, I, you know, that's that's fine. That's just fine. In large part, they don't get what we're doing, and that's my responsibility. That's one reason I'm doing this. So I can say, please refer to the beginning of the third Rolling Studies podcast where I talk about this. Forgive all that throat clearing, Nick. I, just before we get into to Robin is sterile, this is an exposition in three steps. How is it even possible? What's the lake backdrop? What's the shed evidence? And the shed evidence is going to be looking across the gamut of everything that Rolling has written and published that we know about. You know. Would that we had that rabbit book, doggone it. But yeah, every, everything from basically Philosopher's Stone forward. Uh, let's, let's go there. What did you find that triggered this idea? There must have been, there must have been something that stuck out in, in Running Grave and thought, there's a thread I want to pull. Oh, yeah. Well, that, that was, I, that moment is, well, first of all, I didn't get to it when the rest of you got to it. I, I didn't get to it for weeks, you know, because I was... <laughs> I was charting the whole doggone book, um, but it's in it's on, it's on page two fifty seven to two fifty eight in Doctor Zhu's office, but he goes off about Ian and Yang, and and he asks her, "Have you ever had an STD?" And we get the astonishing reply, "No, lied Robin." And I hope everybody went, "What?" You know, Robin's had an STD, and. In fact, the rapist who had ended her university career had given her chlamydia, for which she'd been given antibiotics. Now, you can go back and you can read about, I think it's, I think it's in Career of Evil, you can read about what happened you know, the day she was raped and how she dreaded you know, the possibility she might need an abortion, this kind of thing. Or maybe that's, maybe that's later. Maybe that's in, in Troubled Blood. 
the, the thought that she might have an abortion. But the, um, the original testing and things like that, I think it's in Career of Evil. But nowhere do we get that she got a positive test for an STD. Yeah, that, 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 was, that was kind of a stunner. It's offered as something of an aside and a matter of no consequence. But it turns out, if you just do a simple Google search, and I'm afraid that's really the level of my knowledge in these things. I am not a person who menstruates. I don't really know anything about this kind of thing. I, I, again, I, the back channel's moderation. I asked a woman whom I admire dearly, you know, if she could help me on this, if she could coach me on this. You know, what does chlamydia do? What is its gestation period to become PID? This and that. And she goes, John, you know, I don't, I wouldn't think that because you're a man, you could tell me all about erectile dysfunction. You know, I don't know, I don't know every STD and its relation to PID and fertility because I'm a woman. And I was like, okay, harsh, but you know, I'll take it. I said, by the way, probably every man over 40 will pretend that he's an expert on, on erections. So, you know, take that, you know, <laughs> but you won't pretend and you know, good on you for not pretending. Um, I have written an OBGYN friend I've, you know, that I know well. Uh, I mean, he's, he's been in practice for 30 or 40 years. He hasn't gotten back to me. So I'm, I'm going out here on a, on, a, on a limb on just stuff I know from Google searches. If you just Google chlamydia, you find out it has this particularly nasty side effect if not treated promptly and thoroughly. And that is, it can make it difficult or impossible to get pregnant, okay? It's basically because it causes inflammation that causes pregnancy to be difficult. And in some cases, it can, if, if the inflammation is in the fallopian tube itself, it can cause a fatal ectopic pregnancy, potentially fatal. This, this is a big deal, right? I mean, it, it got, just going through my, my Google search here, it can cause the formation of scar tissue that blocks fallopian tubes, which again, an ectopic pregnancy. It can cause infertility, not being able to get pregnant. And it can cause long-term pelvic and abdominal pain, okay? Because that's, 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 that's the, P, the pelvic inflammatory disease. Now, you don't know, you know if you've got chlamydia all the time because it doesn't have any symptoms, okay? And even when chlamydia has no symptoms, it can still be doing its damage to a woman's reproductive system. Now, you know, before people start to run in circles, scream and shout here. I, no, Robin does not have chlamydia present tense. You know, the, the antibiotics that she was given after she was raped to treat the condition obviously were effective. It's, it's logical because Robin's two sexual partners, Matt and Ryan, consequent to her using chemical estrogen as birth control method, they would have been infected if she was a symptom-free carrier of chlamydia. But they're not. But we don't know how promptly Robin was diagnosed with the condition after having been raped. Now you can say, well, even the NHS isn't going to be that bad. Um, and we'll talk about, I want Nick to talk about that, because what I know about the NHS, you could write on the fingernail of my pinky finger with a, with a wide-tipped Sharpie. You know what I mean? But, but if that antibiotic treatment was not immediate, which must be allowed at least as a possibility, you know, humor me here, folks, or had advanced sufficiently before being treated successfully, then she may have developed pelvic inflammatory disease. Okay, a condition that can be symptom-free and which can also cause de facto sterility, right? There's no test for PID. 
you may, I mean, this is again from the Google searches, you may not realize you have PID because your symptoms may be mild or you may not experience any symptoms, okay? And if you take antibiotics, you know, for this, your symptoms may go away for the PID, but before the infection is cured. And, and if you haven't finished taking your medication, well, then you're stuck with it. You don't know it. And, and your partner's not going to get PID. You know, that's not, that, that's not part's not transferable. All right, so I'm, I'm a, you know, I'm an American. I'm going to assume the NHS blew this. And that may have led to PID before the antibiotics for chlamydia worked their magic. If, if Robin was symptom-free for PID and tests showed she was chlamydia-free, why would she be tested for it or suspect that she had it? Again, I'm waiting on someone who knows something about this subject, who has more than just the... The, you know, the access to DuckDuckGo or whatever to come in here and say, John, you know, you got to have chlamydia for at least a year before PID takes place. You know, I, that information is critical to this conversation. And I understand that people with that kind of knowledge speak with authority on this issue while I don't. But what I do know, you know, as much as you, you know anything from a Google search, is that that chlamydia mention that little aside there can lead to something which is remarkable you know a woman who's unable to have a child um so nick in the end it's all down to your beloved nhs not doing their jobs <laughs> okay now to be fair to her she probably just had to wait a couple of weeks and to them she probably just had to wait a couple of weeks until she moved to the front of the queue there you know that social medicine line that goes out the door and down the block uh, or or let's 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 allow Nick here, apologist for all things United Kingdom. Is there another explanation for Robin's chlamydia giving her PID that isn't down to their negligence? I I hate to be so predictable, John, but I I <laughs> I, I have to declare an interest here. I I am a card carrying socialist. I have no intention. Woo! I Woo! have no intention of giving up my card just yet. So. Here, here, here we are. Firstly, is is you're an American, Nick. You're you're. There's an American in there hiding. Don't be telling. I I know your personal history, buddy. You you could actually make a a good pitch to the embassy to pick up American citizenship at any time. So okay, I'm I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be Mr. happy Carter to be an, an immigrant, John. But I am I am I am definitely as as Cormoran would say British. Okay, okay. And there are card-carrying American socialists, too, you know. I mean, we, we admit that they exist here, but anyway, go on. So my defense of the NHS. So the NHS has its problems, and there are waiting lists, but there are no waiting lists for things like forensic examination post-rape. Uh, there, are, there are no waiting lists for ER rooms, which, which is where this would occur. So... She would she would see um, a specialist immediately or pretty close to immediately. Now that's that's usually not good enough for a diagnosis of chlamydia. There is some gestation period before tests will become accurate. So more than likely she would have had two tests. And chlamydia is absolutely on the top of the NHS epidemiology risk chart for those very reasons that you mentioned it, it it has no symptoms so the NHS actually has a target I mean outside of treatment post post rape has a target of testing 25% that's a quarter of the under 25 sexually active population 
whether they're showing symptoms, whether they have protected or unprotected sex annually, they want to test a quarter of people under 25 who are sexually active. And the reason for so, so you're saying you're you're saying I'm talking through my hat. Absolute, is what you're saying is that I don't know the first thing about absolute. NHS. Gosh, that, that, that has the ring of truth. Sadly. Uh, so, so uh, I mean, to the point that that anyone um, who attends for emergency contraceptive will be given a chlamydia test as a matter of course. That just happens. Even, uh -huh. even given that the gestation period, so the incident that that caused the need for emergency contraceptive. Uh, may not be a good indicator, but because such a high proportion of people under 25 who are sexually active are carriers anyway, they're given the test as a matter of course. Anyone anyone who thinks they might be at risk in the UK, they can pop along to their GP surgery and get a test. So anyone who's had risky sex, Bijou, I'm talking, and by extension, Cormorant, I'm talking to you two, you can go to... You can go to your GP surgery. If you're uncomfortable going to your GP surgery, you can go to your pharmacist or you can go to a pharmacist you've never been to before and request a test and you will you will get tested for this disease. So what a wonderful country. What a wonderful country. <laughs> uh, oh, we, we have so many problems, John. But uh, I, I think in terms of getting getting uh, free, effective chlamydia testing on demand is not one of them. So I don't think it's credible that post-unprotected rape, Robin could have contracted chlamydia um, and had delayed treatment to such an extent that she developed PID. So wait, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. Does that blow up my entire theory? Are we going to talk about nothing for the rest of this show because you've demonstrated well, that? Well, John, that... you know I've been arguing for shorter podcasts, but no. <laughs> No, so there is there there is, I think, a way that that Robin could have developed BID, and that's if she had a pre-existing chlamydia. So if she had Oy. unknown, undiagnosed chlamydia for some time before her rape, this was then diagnosed post-rape and treated, but because nobody knew the length of time that she had the disease she could have silently developed PID and no one would have known so how, how is that possible well she was <laughs> she was sleeping with a lying cheating rat for all that period of time and it we know and he's rat, we, rat we know rhymes with what <laughs> as in low down dirty John we we know he's done the low down dirty at least once yes i find it not beyond the realms of credibility uh, that he cheated on robin before infected robin both of them uh, were asymptomatic robin got tested got treated then matt thought oh hang on i better go and get myself checked found out he had it got himself treated and never said anything to robin now it, wow that's that's not only fascinating; it's disgusting. But yeah, um, I mean, because you're being—you're actually being nice to Matt with all of those sobriquets you throw out about him. Is that what if he found out that he had chlamydia before the rape and didn't tell her? Because he'd have to admit to her, you know, he didn't pick that up from a toilet seat. Uh. So I mean, this is 
this is uh well the um, risk the risk of course if matt if, uh, matt was that low down is he would have had to have used a barrier after that to not get himself reinfected from robin ah ah well we don't know what her birth control was no that's oh yeah we, we do but, but we don't know what her birth control was before the rape no um i don't know um how generous the nhs is with chemical birth control for I, um so, so, relative so, minors so certainly in wales it is absolutely free um i think in england there is a prescription charge but it is it is nominal but what is the age uh, would there have been any any taboo of a woman who's just beginning college no no so we're talking 18 19 years old no not not at all so so i think for even from age 16 parental authority is not required i think for the age of 16 unless there are exceptional circumstances then parental authority is required okay so we can't assume that they were using physical barriers you know condoms this kind of thing no um she could have been on a chemical barrier but but it, it's possible that that happened i i you know I, I love this theory i love this theory because like everybody else i hate matt right <laughs> i mean after being caught in a pregnancy trap by sarah shadlock yeah you, know, you felt a little bit of sympathy for him because frankly you know what worse fate could you have than to have him married to sarah shadlock for the rest of his life i mean that's just it, anyway, it, it has a poetic justice to it. That's right. But then to find out that he's the source of it, I'm thinking I want to kick that back even farther and say that he found out about it and didn't tell her. And he was actually relieved when I mean, relieved to some degree when she was raped because it, it covered up his it covered up the whole, you know, infidelity issue, which we know we had problems with infidelity and being honest about it. You know, there it is. Anyway, but this this is fascinating. Uh, much more interesting, frankly, than my theory. That uh, because my theory really depends on there being a mistake somewhere that the chlamydia isn't treated promptly enough at post-rape. Your theory leaves us <clears throat> with, you know, as much as what a year? It, it two, could be it two could years. Be, could be, yeah, yeah. Because they were they were sweethearts. I think from fifth year in school, so two two years. Okay, that's uh, you know again we don't know the gestation period of PID and stuff, but uh, it's a lot more than <laughs> just rape to treatment. I and as, I, I think certainly to be credible. I, I mean, in the in the most unlikely circumstance that a test was missed for whatever reason um, and was subsequently found out, oh hang on, we've missed this test. If it was to such a degree that PID could even be possible then that's what all the doctors would be looking for. Wow. I mean, Louise Freeman likes to call Matt the flubber worm. <laughs> um, <laughs> it always makes me grin and chuckle. That's, that, yeah, and the fact that he would be the agency of Robin's eventual sterility is, uh, I don't know, it, it, it's, it has, a, has a certain charm. I mean, Strike's relationship with Charlotte is dramatic and violent a little bit crazy, a little, little, little berserk over there, as, 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 as she wears as her, her epithet. But um, Matt just seems going to be kind of like a, you know, he's, he seems gormless, harmless, right? He's nasty. He, you know, he can, he can bare his teeth sometimes, but there's really no bite there. But if he put the bite, if, but even the bite into her gave her chlamydia after the affair, I mean, that, that, sorry, that, that, uh, 
puts him right up there on the on the bad guys. List. Well, I think there is. I think there is a nasty streak there, isn't there? I mean, uh, I mean, c- certainly with with the interactions we see from him. For for me, um, he he's a young Vernon Dursley. I think ooh. I think as as middle age piles uh, onto him, complete with its pounds, I th- I could certainly see him moving on from accountancy to the selling of drills. Wow. You're a mean guy. You're mean. <laughs> this, this, is a, this is a mean streak in you, too. Have you just found this out, John? I'm on board. I, I'm, I'm on board. I'm on board with this. So <laughs> what we know we know how Robin finds out that she's got chlamydia, if not the ID. So what's the scenario? How does Robin find out that that she can't have kids? Yeah. And this, I confess, I hadn't really thought about that because... There is no way that she finds out she doesn't have kids until she's married, until, you know, she follows the same progression that her her friends do, striking her shared friends, Ilsa and, um, I'm forgetting his name, forgive me. Nick, ah, ah, you would remember that, wouldn't you? Okay, okay. Uh, Nick and Ilsa, they struggle for years to become pregnant. And that would be something you would check right is to see if it's PID but Robin's if she's if she's asymptomatic and that's clearly you know this this disease has some really nasty symptoms PID okay if they're present again Google search you get pain in your lower abdomen and pelvis I don't know about you Nick pain in my lower abdomen and pelvis is not one of those things I say oh this will go away you know Unusual or heavy vaginal discharge that may have an unpleasant odor. I bet women say that ain't right. Unusual bleeding from the vagina, especially during or after sex or between periods. Again, I, I just don't see women saying, "Oh, pshaw," or pain during sex. I mean, these are. I mean, PID, so we're assuming it's asymptomatic. Because if you have any of those things, well, you know, you're talking to your your GP, right? I mean, this is this I, is. I mean, I understand. But there is a disease called endometriosis, which women can get, which is where tissue from the womb can grow in places where it's not supposed to be. And this right. this can cause many of these same signs and symptoms. And sadly, at least in the UK, I don't know what the situation is like in America, but that, that is very frequently misdiagnosed as just normal pains or, or unusual uh, periods period pains um and and is not diagnosed as a medical condition so so i could understand potentially if robin had some of these symptoms and and that wasn't picked up by the gps uh, in the uk but if she was having these symptoms you would think somewhere in the text it might exactly. it might mention exactly that's right i mean i i, I really try, i really struggle with readers who, who so identify with the books they can't step back and read it as a text. You know, they, they, they just love the characters so much and they they wouldn't do that. <laughs> I know they wouldn't do that. But talking about rolling as a writer, this would be tough if Robin has been having the symptoms of PID or endometriosis or even just difficult periods. That wouldn't be mentioned somewhere in the thing. you know. And, and pain during sex. The only time we get anything like pain during sex is, frankly, you know, having sex with Matt is kind of a pain. You know, other than that, you know, Robin seems that you know, there'd be some. We, we want to believe, thinking about rolling as a writer, that we'd have this. This is not going to suddenly blindside us. Where, where Robin says, 
oh, that's what all those horrific symptoms were my entire life that I've never mentioned to anyone. Think, oh, that only happens at least 12 times a year. You know, I mean, it's, it's just, it doesn't do that. Anyway, Lorna Calhoun said, how is she going to find this out, John? And, you know, I, I was flustered by that. I mean, I, 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 I told Lorna that was an excellent point. It was my way of saying, doggone it, you know? <laughs> I mean, because the only way I could see Robin being tested for PID would be if she began to show symptoms. But as, you know, Lorna pointed out, the revelation that she is sterile would only come through her attempts at becoming pregnant and after a significant passage of time, a la Nick and Ilsa Herbert, all right? In contrast, the reveal that she is not sterile is pretty straightforward, right? She becomes pregnant. Right? So um, that's, that, was, that was kind of a blow um, because the Robin is sterile theory, even before the whole Matt Chlamydia thing, all but requires that Robin be symptom-free. I didn't know if this thing could be symptom-free and then flare up, so maybe she would be thinking about it and things. Um, but then I had a woman write to me. Really, She was pretty upset about the whole chlamydia theory you know it took a kind of personal there you know how primitive i was to think that that was even an important subject but back to the pid symptoms one of the ways untreated pid causes infertility is being the agency of inflammation in the fallopian tubes which causes an ectopic pregnancy now if robin becomes pregnant via a ryan murphy pregnancy trap and you know frankly uh, you know, Matt, to me, just seems, you, you describe him as Berman and Dursley, and that's okay, because, you know, Vernon Dursley is largely unaware of his own evil. You know, his kind of evil is just conformity to conventional narratives. Ryan Murphy, I can see Ryan Murphy just being evil, capital E, you know, dark side, you know, I want this woman, I want, and the only way I'm going to get this woman if I get her pregnant I have a means to that. I have a needle. I have a condom. You know, I can I can make this happen. But if Robin becomes becomes pregnant through evil Ryan Murphy, and it turns out to be an ectopic pregnancy consequent to undiagnosed PID, that has the potential of ending Robin's life. You know, ectopic pregnancies, you know, that's dicey. More likely for narrative as well as medical reasons. I would think that that ectopic pregnancy would result in a hysterectomy after emergency surgery. And then we have a woman who is sterile. You know, that, that Robin might learn that she had PID only by becoming pregnant, but it being a pregnancy which ends in her being barren. Now that, that ectopic pregnancy that she gets via PID inflammation of the fallopian tubes, and you know, again, I'm laying that all at Murphy's door there, results in an emergency hysterectomy to save her life, whence her not being able to have children. But regardless of how Roland gets us from the STD, the PID, the sterility, Nick, what is, what is the Lake story here? Why would Rowling want, I mean, so I'm gonna close off the conversation of how, and let's 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 get our flippers on and our you know our goggles and our scuba stuff. Let's get into the lake here. Why would Rowling want to make the heroine of her longest ever series unable to have children? Okay, so lake lake is lake inspiration, which which is we we talk about comes either from life or literature, and from her life we know well she has many friends who we can reasonably assume don't have children as many of us do. 
but I'm going to limit myself to one of her closest friends who has written about not having children. And it's actually the oldest female friend which we are aware of. And her name is Lynn Corbett. She got a credit at the start of Ink Black Hearts along with her partner, Bill, because she is probably best known as being a celebrity astrologer, one half of the Starsky and Cox duo, who've written several books on, on astrology. Lynn and Rowling first met in Paris, where they were both studying. So Rowling was on a um, foreign exchange uh, year from Exeter, and Lynn was studying in the Sorbonne. And it's tempting to think that that is where Rowling first started taking a very keen interest in astrology. We, we know that Rowling herself is, is a competent astrologer in her own right. Lynn, of course, went on to become a, a professional astrologer. She's had a fascinating life. So she was uh, a fashion designer before she, she, she took up astrology. Uh, she's now uh, a professional psychologist. And Lynn is child-free. And she's written about it on a, a website called the American Baroness and she's she's taken the title Baroness because she is barren she cannot have children and she talks about effectively the the nobility of of not having children so so rather than being um, a condition that that women are not expected to have she makes it into almost a position that, that should be aspired to she has a long list famous women through history who haven't had children and have accomplished great things and I, I want to read to you from her website actually so she says every child free woman has a story to tell a trajectory to her title mine will sound familiar I often think about all those years ago my husband trying to figure out how to create a baby's room in the teeny tiny hallway of our rent stabilized apartment in the west village we talked about waiting to have kids until we struck it rich. We saw friends getting pregnant in their late 30s and early 40s. It looked like fun. We were in no rush. Then my uterus went poof. One emergency surgery later and time had run out. Now this isn't someone that had planned to have a child-free life. This isn't someone necessarily that was that had set their heart on it but this is someone whose opportunity for having children had been taken away from her and she's reclaimed that and she she's trying to turn it into something positive so she talks uh, about uh, friends who have children asking her why don't you have any with the assumption that that's a uh, what is wrong with you now now clearly she has had in a medical emergency that has taken that opportunity from her but her response is, nothing is wrong with me. That's the point, nothing is wrong. And I think because Rowling and and Corbett are so close, I mean, this is a lady that in the at the start of the, the COVID pandemic was stranded in the UK. She couldn't get back to America. All the flights had stopped. No one was, was accepting passengers. Rowling sent a private jet pick up Lynn and her husband and fly them back home. This is a lady who through the years has regularly gone on holiday with the, the Rowling family. 
this is a close friend. I can well believe that when Joe is thinking of a trajectory for her heroine, this may be a life path that will strike a chord with her. She said quite a few times in, in Pottermania, her first great hero, Harry. This was a hero that she, she has written who's someone who wears glasses. The Baroness, Lynn Corbett, many of her other friends, people we know she, she works with in the, the feminist movement, made her think she needs to tell a story about another unsung hero. Not not, not a boy who wears glasses, but, but a woman, a strong, powerful woman, who isn't a mother, who can't be a mother. What do you think? What do you think, John? What do you see in the lake? Well, you've drilled the... Uh the safe course here, Nick. You've talked about a woman who has, you know, has, it's, it's the way she makes a living. You know, it's, it's, she's a positive psychologist and she celebrates being child free rather than childless or barren or something like that. She, you know, she, she really celebrates it. And you can, you can, you can read that as, as, as a woman making the best of a bad hand or you can just say, no, she's, you know, she's embraced this identity for as a strength. Um, but there, there are other people inside this, and I, I guess you've, you're going to leave it to me to, to, to go there. You know, um, I, I think there's there's other people here. Most notably, you know, obvious obvious to me is her sister. You, you follow this much more closely than I do, but I'm not aware of any children for the Moors. I'm not. I'm not aware of any, and, and the reason I'm hesitant, John, is is because she hasn't written about it. That's right. Again, absence of evidence isn't evidence of absence, but but we we don't know of any. Absolutely. Children. All right. I, I'm going to take the 2054 perspective and, and assume that we know the answer to this question. And I hope Diane Moore will Diane Rolling Moore will forgive me if I am totally off base here, but we don't have any pictures of. Diane and Roger Moore with children. And this is Rowling's really only close family relative. She's obviously broken with her father. Her mother is dead. Her mother's family is kind of odd, and we don't hear that much from them. And the paternal uncles and cousins have been cast into the outer darkness. You know, what's that part of Christmas Pig? They're, they're the, uh, the land of, well, the land of the lost, yeah, but the, the barren. What's it called? The waste, you know. Um, they're, they're off in the waist. Um, the, there's that. And then there's one of the other Porto godmothers of Swin. Yeah, so there's, so there's two godmothers of Swin. There's uh, Ayn Keeley, who we're fairly confident has at least one child. And yes. there is Jill Pruitt. Jill. Right. J.J. Yeah. Marsh. And, and she writes as J.J. Marsh. And, you know, <laughs> I want to bring her up because... I've read almost all of her books. You know that this is. I mean, I've 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 read fourteen of the Beatrice Stubbs series. All right, and this is the the heroine investigator that in Pruitt J J Marsh's books is the heroine. She's an international crime specialist with Scotland Yard and the Metropolitan Police. She's in her fifties. She's mentally ill, and she's childless though she acts in the role of mother to the offspring of her lover of many years, but, but she broke up his marriage to the woman. You know, there's all sorts of issues going on there, but it's largely about the fact that she's childless. 
I mean, it's been it's been two years since I picked up a J.J. Marsh novel, so I hope I haven't totally blown that. Forgive me if I have. But the fact that Jill Pruitt and Diane Moore and Lynn Corbett are childish, and these these are you know three of the four or five women that she's closest to, are childless, child-free, by their own choice, not of their own choice. Certainly Pruitt or Diane Moore have not made being child-free what Lynn Corbett has. You know, she calls herself the American Baroness. You know, her title is a play on barren or being infertile, right? As you said, she's got the AmericanBaroness.com. You know, I mean, this is, this, you know, she talks about being, the nobility of being child-free. The fact that she's a positive psychologist and Rowling has said if she, if she weren't a writer, she would have been a psychologist. I mean, she has, her, she has a friend who's done that. And as you say, you know, Rowling, said she always wanted to write a book that had a hero that had specs. Why would she not? And, this thing, and, and beyond that, you mentioned she has friends. Well, let's be clear. Those friends are lesbians. Either they adopt or they do in vitro stuff. If they, if they, if they really want to have children, but many of them are simply childless because you know, it takes two. And she's also a champion of relatively modern Muslim women who, I mean, that's, that's not a real sales point in the marketplace for partners in the Islamic world to say that you're a feminist. So she she has a lot of contact with women that are child free. I would think at least as many people as are wearing glasses, you know, <laughs> that, and that she would think to herself, wow, what would it be like to have that? I mean, that, that to me is a lake moment, is that rolling is, a, you know, and, and you know, the, the strike series like Christmas pig turns on this kind of issue. The things that I see in the lake, because she says they come from sort of unresolved unconscious issues. We have, we have the seven known crises of which six are fully in the public record. We have the death of her mother and the estrangement from her father. That's, that's Freudian family romance right there. And we talked about that at real length in the Christmas pig episode. You know, if you don't understand the Peter John conflict, you're missing a lot. I mean, the, the, the conflict between law and love and stuff like that. I mean, that, that's really at the heart of a lot of that. And the importance of mother's love. I mean, that's her go-to thing for the fabric of reality is a mother's love. And so those two things, those are critically important. And we all know about them. And the abusive husband in her first marriage, she's written about that now explicitly in her conversations about why she's taken her positions that she has about transgenderism. We've also learned about clinical depression that she experienced as a single mom in Edinburgh, the suicidal thoughts, the CBT experience. Um, that's, that's a critical part of her life. And it, you know, it, it has obvious bleed points into her books. I mean, you, don't, you don't get the dementors without. Then we have something that you're teaching me a lot about really, and that's her change in social standing because of Pottermania, where she goes from a single mom on the dole to being, you know, a woman that's listed on lists of the richest people in the United Kingdom. In the United States, we have rich people who grew up poor, who are kind of awkward in that situation. They don't carry themselves like aristocrats. But that doesn't mean uh, in the United States what I think it means just from our conversations in the United Kingdom. But still, that's a big, that's a crisis. That, that shift. I think everyone recognizes that. And, and just the, 
struggles with fame. You know, people going through her bins, you know, you know, doorstepping her and things. That's a, that's a crisis. You see a lot of that in, in uh, things like Cuckoo's Calling and, and the whole conflict with fame. Then number six is the one that we don't have statements of, but inductive reasoning and speculation leads us to think it was a crisis. Is the marriage to Dr. Neil Murray and parenting two children? while being also the mother of a daughter from a different father. And I'm going to come back to that one, okay? And the seventh crisis is the one of the last several years where she's championed the right of women to reserve spaces apart from men to include those who identify as women. The, the effort which changed her relationship with the political left and the progressive leadership of Potter fandom effectively ended it, really. And that, and that obviously was a crisis. You know, when people all over social media globally are calling for you to be raped and murdered, you know, that, that, has a, that, that is, is going to give you a thing. And I think Black Heart, I don't care what she says about, you know, oh, I, I planned that, you know, years in advance. You know, I'm sorry. That, that, that book was like an open wound on that count. Of, of the seven crises, six are public record, have been the subject of her own comment and reader discussion. The one that has not been part of the public record, but which is evident in the Corman Strike series, and especially in Christmas Pig, is her second marriage and subsequent blended family. We talked about this last week. I mean, she's ferociously private and protective of her Murray identity. We don't know anything really about her husband, their two children, how they all get along. I, I think we talked about this last, last time. We don't know what Jessica Arante's real name is, her legal name. We don't know what she does. We don't know where she lives. We know, she, you know, a little bit. She's a scientist of some kind, but we don't. We don't know anything about that. We know from the strike novels and the Christmas Pig, though, that the union was not some cartoon Hallmark drama, right? That there's been significant struggle or conflict in there, and and rather than talk about the Christmas Pig thing, which was largely about the sibling problems, and we got plenty of sibling problems in Cormoran Strike, right? I mean, that just that Holly and. Jack Jones in Christmas Pig, all the, I mean, a lot of the murders happen between our, our, our siblings and children unhappy in, in relationships in, in a mixed family. I'm not going to rehearse all those again for you, but I want to get to the point that the strike novels are largely about male and female roles in light of vocation and the difficulty of a woman taking what has been traditionally a man's role as her vocation while remaining fully feminine. That aspect, I, it, it's, basically, it's, it's no great leap to speculate that the rolling Murray marriage has had to contend from its start with the elephant in the room of, you know, rolling being anything but the diminutive wallflower wife. You know, that, that she didn't change her name right away to, you know, Joe Murray and just stop going by J.K. Rowling. She still publishes as J.K. Rowling. She says that she likes to, you know, she, she'd much prefer if she went by Murray because people wouldn't call her Rowling to include too many. We have had those, though, I don't know if you remember, John, those charming photographs of her husband's band, the Fat Cops. <laughs> they were playing a gig in Glasgow, I think, and Rowling was photographed um, selling T-shirts right. on a little T-shirt right. store. <laughs> Now, I, I think post post the transgender issue, that's that's just not possible. That's right. She'd have to have bodyguards selling those T-shirts. 
that's about the extent of which we saw her as that we saw Joe Murray. Okay? She's a global celebrity billionaire. And that's a tough fit in any conventional understanding of male-female marriage. It's, 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 it's not the traditional picture. You know, this is not the woman from Proverbs in the Bible. This is not the, uh, um, you know, this is not a Betty Crocker image from the 50s. This is a tough thing. And really, we talked about, again, this in, in the Christmas pig discussion. They, they've gotten through this. Seemingly, I mean, we don't we don't know the dynamics of their relationship now, but we know they're not divorced. We know that this hasn't become such a crisis that they couldn't live with each other anymore. Which is a which, I, it's hard to underestimate that accomplishment, because remember Neil Murray wasn't, you know, he wasn't Matt Cunliffe. Yeah, you know, he wasn't a gormless you know character. Um, he walked into this knowing that he was marrying a world famous woman. And he's largely lost his identity as a doctor in the stinning it has in the community. He's now basically Mr. J.K. Rowling. I can't imagine that would be an easy thing. Maybe people will just write me off as a horrible misogynist. I think I'm just being religious, religious realistic in that this has biological roots. And this, 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 I think, is part of the whole rolling conversation about transgenderism is that you can say whatever you want about being a house husband not being a stigma and people can have that that role in their lives and not feel stunted or or any kind of shame but there's biological things we talked last in the last show about how a woman via her ability to give birth to a child and nurture that helpless creature is just by nature by you know biological activity more likely to be nurturing, to, to display a selfless, sacrificial, unconditional love for a child than a man is. He doesn't have that, that relationship as, as the, uh, the mother of the mad, mad murderer in Troubled Blood said, a human being comes out of you. That makes a difference. And, and I think that's a no-brainer, right? And then a man, as much as a man biologically has access to that kind of selfless, unconditional, sacrificial love. It's in providing and protecting. He's biologically bigger and stronger, and so he fills that kind of role. Again, I understand. I'm five foot four. I understand that there are women who are taller and stronger than I am. But just in terms of you know the rule of biology, I know I'm not. I, I've I've uh, been the midwife to the birth of five children. I've watched my wife give birth to five children, home alone with John, okay? There's not much that is more humbling to a man than to watch that happen because, you know, it ain't never happening in my life. That crisis in Rowling's life that her second marriage represented, I think, in the in the in the years, basically the ten years between their marriage and her work post Deathly Hallows to plot this the Corman Strike series, to write the Ichabog, to write Christmas Pig. I, I really do think Casual Vacancy was a project she'd been working on for a long time as her, you know, her her semi-autobiography. That ten year period, I think, is where these issues, she really explored them intensively. 
as a psychologist wannabe, as a studier of the human condition, of a woman who, who writes about story and archetypes, that that's the, a huge piece of this lake element is that. I, again, I don't know how many times that we have, to, we have to say this. This is one of the seven crises that we can't be sure of because Rowling's not talking about it. And you know, Nick, I keep sending those interview requests into uh, Rowling Incorporated and uh, they don't send me polite responses. Um, well, j j just in case uh, Joe or, or uh, any of her team is listening, um, that, that request is still that's, open. That's, yeah, yeah we'll, we'll send you the questions in advance. We won't blindside you. It's really her assistant. I, I don't think Joe listens to this stuff, but I think that, that uh, her uh, military veteran assistant that holds her book, I think, really. DB Mac. Yeah, DB Mac. <laughs> DB, if you're out there listening, I, I spent six years in the Marine Corps. Don't I get any kind of cred for that? I mean, come on. I got 22 years in harness and rolling studies. Do I, do I, get, I, get, I get nothing. I get nothing. All right. I, again, I, I, I think Rowling's heroic and sacrificial stand against the mad overreach of transgender activists and their supporters has largely been the fruit of her study and reflection in light of this struggle on the roles and identity of men and women as such, which is to say re respecting biological reality and boundaries while acknowledging, respecting, and nourishing the masculine and feminine aspects in every person. For example, strike is lame. You know, he's, he's a big old dude and has an imposing figure and this and that, but his ability to protect is actually quite limited because he's, he's wearing a prosthetic. You know, someone can, can really, if, if they get into a fight with Strike and they know about that leg, they can attack that limb and he is down and out, right? He loses his ability to play that masculine role. And if Robin, for whatever reason, is shown to be sterile, we see her lose that woman's providence, right? Now, I think about Mrs. Gupta in the beginning of Troubled Blood and her description of her daughters and how two of the three have children and the third will have them because she will never be happy without. You know, there's, there's, that's a very clear statement of the conventional understanding, usually unstated, that women without children are somehow lesser as women for not having had children. Rowling, I think, is going to go there. I, I think the lake that her own experience, as well as her close friends and women that she associates with, that she wants to talk about what it would mean to be a child-free woman, by choice or not by choice, and what that means in light of vocation. We still have that Michael Fancourt aside about how women with children can't be great writers. When I first read that, I thought, boy, <clears throat> Rowling must have loved sticking that in, you know, that that, you know, what's the word for a, what a, uh, a bullfighter those those uh, spears they they throw into the side. It's a wonderful word there. Rolling, I think Rolling has a bunch of those that she throws into the sides of her her uh, bull that she's fighting. I thought that was just her attack. I wonder now if she wasn't saying, yeah, that is problematic. You know that you know the enemy of 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 art 
is the pram in the hallway, which another despicable character, this, that one in Troubled Blood, <laughs> says out loud. Um, I think Rowling may be saying there's something to that. Um, and that that's an issue that has to be explored, that women are different for being parents. Well, we know she, she, was, she, was asked, she, she wasn't asked in the interview, but she said she's often asked how she could do it, how she could, she could write a wonderful novel be a single parent and hold down a full-time job. And she said, well, I didn't do housework. <laughs> yeah, and she also talks about, you know, it, it took her, what, five, six years to write the first one. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't, yeah. it wasn't like she, she was living on the dole and, and, and on her couch sucking bonbons and Jessica was with the nanny. You know, I mean, this was a, this was a, a, a you know, she's very proud of that time in her life, and rightly so, right? I mean, she, she was not a failed mother. Um, she got herself help for a, a mental illness that that still has left her with PTSD, but she obviously learned to cope with it. Because and she said she had to, because she had to be there for her daughter. And again, that's that's a kind of sacrificial love. And her, and there she was in that vocation. Again, that's a lake moment. You don't even need Neil Murray if you don't want to. You can just talk about her being in that flat in Edinburgh, juggling these balls. You know, trying to be a great writer, having this dream of of bringing her book into print and not neglect her child. It's an amazing event, especially when she had suicidal impulses. I think you have to go there with the lake to get at why Rowling would want to have a child-free character inside her book. We discussed this before. I've beaten this to death. Now, she may have come to this plot point consequent to her reflections about male and female relationship roles in her marriage how much they're tied up with biological realities that ground social mores, and yet how the rules don't go away when a man becomes lame or a woman is infertile. And she, she plays with this pretty straightforwardly in, in terms of the Jungian archetypal things like the Fisher King and the Handless Maiden, all right? And maybe we're overdue for a, a long discussion of that, but only time will tell. But Future critics, I'm pretty sure, will find the answer to why Robin was sterile, if she's sterile, in the lake. And, and the lake, though, isn't just biographical. It's also where she studied. It's also literary. It's, it's, bi it's, it's bibliographical as well as biographical, right? Right. And there are lots of echoes of, of this in, in literature. The, the, one author I've been reading recently um, because of your find in Running Grave is Sylvia Plath. So mm -hmm. so there are certainly fairly strong echoes of the bell jar in the the pool with the drowned prophet and a very, very clear echo in the silkworm with the foundational crime in that book is... Okay, you, you, okay. Um, I love the mental picture of you walking around Eastern Wales with a copy of the bell jar. I mean, you, you're you're already kind of you're already you know, a man who has to be tagged and followed around as a, as a rare bird. But I know who Sylvia Plath is because I went to college with women who had the complete works of Sylvia Plath in their dorm rooms or whatever. Um, many people don't know who Sylvia Plath is. I, forgive me for interrupting you. Maybe you're going to just about to explain this, but Sylvia Plath is quite the character. I'm I'm fairly new to her work, so do you want to give us a a, a potted biography? Oh gosh, I wish that was that good. She, she, but you've you've already uh, touched on really the high point of her life that she was 
well-known in very small circles as a great poet. And then she died. She committed suicide by putting her head in an oven, turning the gas on. Hence, Elspeth Fancourt, right? I mean, but she was married to a, another poet who eventually, I think, becomes the, uh, what's the, what's the, the office in the UK? Poet, poet, he, he poet becomes, laureate. Yeah. I mean, her, her husband has a great second act. You know, he drives his wife to suicide. <laughs> and I shouldn't say that, but that, people have said much worse things about him, believe me. And goes on to become the leading poet in the United Kingdom. As much as that role, you know, is that, that I think it's sort of the um, position, at least, of the lead poet. And Sylvia Plath is a heroic feminist. I, I believe, you know, she's an American. She, she goes to school, I think, at an all-women's college on the East Coast. And she writes on feminist themes largely around these issues. So, yes, Sylvia Plath, and, and then we get that image, as you said, in, in Running Grief, where all of a sudden a bell jar appears out of nowhere at the, at the cult compound. And it's, it's one of these, why would they have chosen that image of all things for one of their illusions? Why would they include the bell jar? Well, that's rolling, dropping a hint of the title of, of Plath's most autobiographical work about her, her difficulties with mental illness and her treatments. Um, and, and her idea in her life as a woman, which is largely what we're seeing Robin going through right at that moment. So yeah, that's. I'm, I'm curious. I, I didn't expect you to go there. Where, where, where else are you gonna? Where else are you gonna go with with? Because uh, we we don't. Rowling's never discussed Sylvia Plath, has she? I don't think she's ever mentioned no. her as an influence or. No, and I found I found other than those two uh, references, frankly, that you found John in in Silkworm and the Running Grape. Um, I haven't seen a copy on, on her library shelves either but there are three poems that, that Plath wrote uh, around the issues of, of fertility and pregnancy there's uh, the barren woman which is about a woman who cannot have children there's the childless woman which is about a woman that can have children but hasn't had children and there's the heavy woman, which is about a pregnant woman. Um, and I think that they're quite telling, being the state of mind of a woman who hasn't yet had children. Now, Sylvia had two children, actually, by the time she committed suicide. But at the point that she wrote these poems, she, she hadn't. The, the barren woman is pretty dark, pretty, pretty bleak. So, um, empty I echo to the least footfall, museum without statues, grand with pillars, porticos, rotundas. It's pretty. It's a pretty dark, dark poem. The child. We should, we should say when she was writing. She's writing in the late fifties, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. This, this, this is Eisenhower era, and so it's it's well before the waves of feminism that we're that we're familiar with. Yeah. She becomes really a heroine of that generation of feminists. That's, of that's right. The, the, mean, child, I, the childless I, I, woman I, is is another pretty dark poem. Actually, it's about wasted opportunities. That's certainly the way the way I read it. About every every flow of menstrual blood is 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 uh, a wasted opportunity. Wow. So, 
I mean, I, I, I know lots of couples who have tried for children. I, I know myself. You know, we, we've, we've, we've tried for children, and there's, there's always that, that suspicion. You know, can we do it? Can we have kids? And I think that's the state of mind that Sylvia was in. Certainly, when you read Heavy Woman, which is the poem about, uh, about a woman who is, is pregnant, um, there is, there is more than a hint of, of jealousy irrefutable beautifully smug as venus pedestaled on a half shell you know (laughs) yeah i think i think fertility that the possibilities or impossibilities of fertility was something that deeply interested sylvia now she came from from a, a a tradition of the the um female novelists of the victorian era which give us a a whole host of of childless oh, women. Wow, that's yeah. great! Yeah, there we go. I get it. <laughs> um. uh, now, usually, be- because of the, the the age and time at which they were set, there is there is some moral component. So, if we think of Jane Eyre and Bertha Mason, now she was married. She was in a very sexually active partnership. But because it was it was animalistic, it was lust filled. There was no children. Um, we think of in Great Expectations, Dickens' great novel, um, Stella, Stella Havisham. Again, there's there's no femininity. She was cold. She was mechanical, almost robotic. There was no children. Daniel uh, Deronda, actually, which I think is a, is a is a, a tremendous novel in in that most people have very little sympathy with the the great heroine who isn't daniel who is who is gwendolyn gwendolyn marries poorly doesn't marry in love never has a child test of the d'urbervilles okay not from a, a female author this is this is this is uh, thomas hardy but test has a child out of wedlock uh, and the child dies almost immediately similarly Isabella Archer in Portrait of a Lady, Henry James's novel, only really a very passing mention of, of uh, early death of, of her son. And then we come on to the, the other side of the story. And what really struck me with this is Anne Bronte's The Tenant of Wildfell Hall. We, we think of failed mothers. This is, this is a mother, Helen Graham, who was in a very bad relationship with her husband. Actually, abandoned the marriage and took the son with her and this this ends happily and what struck me about the tenant of wildfell hall is how close that parallels rowling's own journey you know so helen became a single mother absconded with with her son and and found love in a new relationship now i John, in the notes for this podcast you rather optimistically wrote nick talks mythology <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I really thought when we, you when we talked about the lake qualities, the bibliographical parts, that you were going to jump right into rolling study of mythology, her fascination with mythology. Yeah. So, 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 so we know she she uh, abandoned German, or, or rather, they they, <laughs> they they agreed to split up and not to remain friends. Um, and wandered down the halls <laughs> to the classical studies department, where she where she studied classical stories. So not not classical languages as such, but but she studied the mythology 
of the Greek and, and Roman civilizations. Um, and she wrote really quite amusingly about that in the in the university. Um, it was what what is the name of that nymph again? <laughs> what is the name of that nymph again? That's right. You almost said it while asking the question. <laughs> Yeah, and in that article, she says point blank, I have more books on my mythology books on my shelf now than I did while a student in the subject. That she's consumed by it. She she really loves that. And again, it's 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 not hard to find that study in her work. I mean, she I mean, you know, she says, you know, flat out that we that but not flat out, but really it's hard to read Harry Potter and not see Orestes. You know, I mean, how many characters do you have that have a scar on their forehead, you know, that are avenging their parents' deaths? And, stuff? Um, and you have Theseus named flat out in Fantastic Beasts. You know, that, that in that article, I think she calls uh, Theseus a, a, a war crime, a, a war criminal of some kind, you know, some crimes against humanity of Theseus. And I'm like, oh, wow, okay. But the Strike series is where I think she really comes into her own um, with the mythological templates. I, I go after this at real length in my Substack post on this. I'm not gonna bore you silly with this, but there there's three backdrops to the Strike. It's not, it's not just Orestes here, right? It's, it's not just Theseus. We've got a lot going on here with mythology in Cormoran Strike. I mean, it's, it's really hard once you see it to unsee the three mythological backdrops of the story. I mean, you start off with, you know, Leda and the Swan, basically Leda Strike, I mean, it's right in the name, and her children. You know, she has two sets of twins, just because she has, you know, there, there are two fathers. Don't, 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 don't do the genetic things with mythology, all right? She has, but the, the offspring are Castor and Pollux, one of whom is a, is a great driver of horses, and the other one is a boxer. And throughout the story, the Castor and Pollux brothers are evident in the Strike series as Strike, the demigod child of the, you know, the, the rock star god and his human lover, and the driver, the expert driver Castor, is much more human at a human level, not, not, not the superhero figure from the start, in Robin. That, so Castor and Pollux is how, largely how you read the books. Is as, as much as the backdrop is Strike's conception and the mystery of Leda's death, that's that's right there in your face every time they get behind that Robin gets behind the wheel, and especially in in the, the great driving scenes, running great. I mean, what a wow that is, you know. And again, and again, it's Strike you know, losing his mind, but he doesn't lose his mind because you know of all drivers. He's on board with his his brother, Gaster, right? Psyche and Cupid is the next big thing. And, and we don't really get Psyche and Cupid in your face until Troubled Blood. But the myth of Psyche and Cupid, you know, the soul, Psyche means the soul. And Cupid, who is Aphrodite's son and lover, this is mythology, folks, you know? This is, this is not a Victorian drama. Their relationship and its role in terms of archetypal feminine psychology is critical. Where Robin, you know, the, the failed psychology major is Psyche. Cupid is Strike, who's in this relationship with Venus. Problematic. 
And there's and, and again, there's there's multiple posts at Hogwarts Professor about this. And, and again, I've said this before, I'll say it again. If you don't really lean on these mythological templates and how Rowling is at once adapting them and rewriting them to her own agenda, you're really not getting the heart of her shed artistry. There's, there's the ring composition, there's the literary alchemy, there's the mythology. You know, I, but in, in, in Running Grave, what we get finally is Artemis the Avenger. If you want to read about, you know, Castor and Pollux and Cupid and Psyche, really go to Hogwarts Professor, just type that into the search thing and you'll be bare, you'll, you'll be reading for, you know, an hour or two about all the stuff that, how that shows in the first seven books of the Strike series. But those two things work better if Robin is childless. You know, Castor and Pollux are brothers, all right? Now, even given, you know, kind of the you know, relatively pre-Christian sexuality of mythology, uh, Castor and Pollux are never mentioned anywhere as, you know, buggering each other. This is, this is, not, this is not what's happening inside that story. I mean, they're, they're best mates. They've even slept together now we have Running Grave, but this is a platonic relationship. They've only slept together literally rather than conjugally. They're, they're not brothers, but if Robin is childless, they in a way become brothers in that respect. They, they, can, they, they can certainly consummate these, their relationships sexually, but it's, it's not going to res result in the fruit of children. It, it gives them a different relationship than married with children, if, if that way. Okay, And in Psyche and Cupid, Psyche and Cupid eventually have children. They have, they have the, the evocative names of, of uh, joy and pleasure, I think. But that, that union with children does not happen on the earthly plane. That happens after Cupid's escape from Venus, after Psyche's many trials, after her journey to hell and back, um, where she really confronts her femininity. You know, she has to put aside all of her uh, feminine characteristics of sympathy and empathy to get through hell safely. That's largely her giving up these nurturing selfless love characteristics of a woman. Only when they get to that point does she transcend the world and the pair conceive a child as equals after, you know, Cupid, Cupid basically cuts a deal with Zeus. <laughs> yeah, he's going to get Cupid's help whenever a choice maiden catches his eye. But anyway, this, their union with, with a wedding banquet is how that ends in another world, not in this one. So again, for the Psyche and Cupid thing to work, Strike and Robin will have to achieve anterotic or selfless sacrificial love, something world transcending for each other to be have, have a child, if that's ever possible, on the incarnate plane. And because the children are named youth and joy and pleasure and such, that suggests that that's what they're really going to have, is a, is a satisfying sexual relationship without children. Anyway, all that's those things. And you read about those things at, at, on longer Hogwarts professor posts dedicated to them. But though, if Robin is childless, those things become, they make more sense. But the third one, the third mythological template was revealed in Running Grave along with the chlamydia experience at Chapman Farm. The revelation happens at Chapman Farm. No less a spiritual sage than Jonathan Wace, Papa Jay himself, tags Robin as 
Artemis in their otherworldly conversation in his Chapman Farm office, where he goes through all the things that she's done. You know, you're a hard worker. You never complain of tiredness. You show resourcefulness and courage. You found our Emily in Norwich when she was taken ill, didn't you? You rushed to her defense when Zhang was giving her instructions. You were the first to go to Lin's aid. I think I'll have to call you Artemis. You know who Artemis is? Robin volunteers, the Greek goddess of hunting, which kind of takes Waysa back. Interesting you should speak of hunting first. You know, Robin you know, does a quick you know, double take you know, she's to play the part, but Waysa finds it. He says, there are many contradictions in Artemis as in so many human representations of the divine. She's a huntress, but also a protector of the hunted, of girls up to marriageable age, the goddess of childbirth, and strangely, of chastity. So he expressed you know, problems with her, and he asked, why these contradictions, Artemis? Um, and, you know, Rowling plays with that a little bit. Robin notes that he's using that nickname, you know, as, as much as it's applied to Robin slash Rowena, that Wace uses that quote both to flatter and destabilize her. But it's a great spot on his part. For whatever you think about Wace, and, and really, if, if you have warm feelings for Wace, eh, you kind of missed the point of running grave. But it's a great spot on his part because the girl Friday, Robin, you know, the detective he doesn't know is a detective really is a great defender of children and avenger of women despoiled before marriage. Right? Hence all those things with, with Lynn and, and Emily. Uh, yeah, all, these, all these women at, the, at, the, at Chapman Farm who have been abused by men, some of them having children, some of them you know, committing uh, you know, a self-induced abortion. I mean, all these women Artemis takes care of. So we're not supposed to really, I think, dismiss that sobriquet of Artemis because it comes from Waze. You know, as an Artemis, Robin is almost the equal of Strike because the archer goddess, Artemis, is a child of Zeus too, Zeus and Leto, which is really suggestive of a child of Zeus and Leda, right? More to the point, Artemis is a goddess who has no children herself. Okay? Indeed, she is a virgin. Right? And you can you can read the Wikipedia article for Artemis about that if you want. I mean, I quoted it in my in my thing, but this is a large part of her identity. Perhaps the most important one, you know, if you go through all of the characteristics and, and nicknames for Artemis, is that she's simultaneously a warrior virgin and a mother goddess, right? Robin is not a virgin, of course, or in any way asexual or masculine in the power-driven connotation of that word. She is, however, 30 years old and child-free, and the possibility that she will grow old without a family that cares about her is a future that alarms her. If you doubt that, go back to Betty Fuller's nursing home room in Troubled Blood, where Robin really looks around her and thinks, wow, is this where single people end up? People without children to look out for them, without double incomes? In small boxes, living vicariously through reality stars? I mean, she's, she dedicates herself then to save money. 
Now, Robin's resolve in that room is, isn't to think about starting a family in light of Betty Fuller's single mother example. She's not thinking about getting a more secure future with a husband as well as children, but to save money. She basically makes, she assumes that she's going to be childless going forward. And that's, a, that's, a, that's an odd mic drop in a way. And Robin's Artemis street cred as a defender of women, and especially of children, is solid gold platinum okay as huntress in this regard robin is shown in high relief in her exchange with mad mama mazu in the uhc london temple's upper chamber when they fight over a rifle and the custody of a wailing baby one that robin had delivered as an ad hoc midwife she wins that battle decisively and batters in mazu's face with the rifle butt i mean it, i mean this is not, I mean, there's not, nothing coy. I mean, she basically takes strikes behaviors from the end of Cuckoo's Calling and delivers and takes it up another another notch, right? I mean, in, in Cuckoo's Calling, oh, no, Robin. Uh, oh, no, no, Cormoran, don't kill him. You know, you're, you're killing him. You know, it, it, it's Robin's friend in the room who says, Robin, stop. You know, she, she, she's really incarnated that that um, crazy boxer energy, you know, that mad, mad man energy. I mean, if Robin is sterile, as the chlamydia, STD, and possible PAD makes plausible, however we get there, through Matt, through the rapist, you know, NHS, whatever, you know. The Artemis parallel, as childless goddess, protector, and avenger of women and children, while not a mother herself comes into that much stronger focus. Robin has Castor, Psyche, and Artemis, the three mythological features on which Rowling has transposed her fashion strikes partner, are all matches with her as an infertile woman focused on her vocation as a truth revealer and the scourge of bad men. That's where I thought you were going to go, Nick. <laughs> I, I mean, to me, to me, that's 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 the um, the the big lake influence from her study, from her bibliography, is that Rowling loves mythology not only because she, you know, she in a way she grew up when when she begins to read as an adult in university. That's her foundation but also because these myths are so important to feminine psychology. Um, I really recommend the books by Robert Johnson, and there's one on Cupid and Psyche, whose name I'm gonna forget, but again, read the Hogwarts Professor Post, you'll read all about those. Um, these are critically important works for um, discussion of feminine psychology, ancient, medieval, and modern. Um, and Rowling is just that kind of writer that she has those tools on her shed. My, my, uh, anyway, that's, that is where I think we're going. So other than Artemis, Castor and Pollux, Cupid and Psyche, you were all over. You discovered before Running Grave came out, but all of them, all of them work with Robin as a heroine who is is an avenger, is a protector of women and children, rather than being a mother herself. I mean that that seems to work. But what about the shed bit? What about the shed <laughs> artistry? 
I'm still in the lake. I got to <laughs> take off all my scuba gear here. And uh, gosh, you know, I, I got the bends. I come up from the lake that fast to jump into the shed here. Man, I'm gonna put me in the decompression chamber. Yeah. Um, well, when you talk shed, the first thing I think of is structure. Right? I just, I just literally, you know, I took a month off you know, six weeks off just to do the structure. I, mean, I, I used my paid time off from work to get strike seven down in terms of its structure. And you know, I'm going to brag on myself here, Nick. <laughs> it was it was worth the effort because if someone, if I didn't do it, I don't know who else was going to do it. It would have been... The, I, think I, I think I've said it every podcast so far, and I, I expect to going up ahead. Cheer me up. Thank you so much. Cheer me up, anyone, If there's anyone out there who has not read John's epic coverage of, of the chiastic structure of the running grave, run, don't walk, run towards the <laughs> substack and take a look at it now. Oh, you are such a kind man. It's 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 it's, we're, it's Christmas Eve here. And I feel like I've just opened a present. Thank you so much. Anyway, <laughs> I, again, I, Rowling I think is writing for her readers fifty and a hundred years from now with her care and the structure. And obviously, I'm writing for those same readers <laughs> myself because that's other than you, Nick. I don't think anybody. Well, I shouldn't say that. We have we really do have some very serious strikers at Hogwarts Professor on Substack that have worked their way through them. I, you know, Eduardo has been working his way through these things. God, I, Eduardo, I want you to know, every time you say you like those, what are, they, what are there, 15 of those posts? You, 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 you lift up my heart. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a new man afterward. But anyway, the, the structural argument for sterility, I think there's, there's two points in the series, all right? As we said, one of the ways that untreated PID causes infertility is being the agency of inflammation in the fallopian tubes, which causes an ectopic pregnancy. We've got an ectopic pregnancy at a really critical moment. It's really the foundational crime, one of the foundational crimes of troubled blood, which if you've been listening to these podcasts, you know I think is Rowling's finest work to date, other than you know, it, it's up there with Deathly Hallows and Christmas Pig. And if if um, Evan Willis is right, and I think we have to consider it a real possibility that he is right, that the Ten Burke series works as this to track this pyramid, the center book, the central point of the series is between books five and six. And we don't learn until the very end, you know, the epilogue of Troubled Blood about Theodosia Loveridge. A woman who had an ectopic pregnancy, a traveler, that she came to, Mag to Margot Bamborough's clinic the day that doctor was murdered. Okay? And if you read those, you can read two posts that I wrote on this subject about reading Troubled Blood as a medieval morality play a la Spencer's Fairy Queen. It's about the, about the ghosts that are haunting Troubled Blood, but really the most important one is reading Troubled Blood as an allegory. That reading shows that I mean, Theodosia Loveridge has an oversized play in the allegory because she's known throughout that book as Theo or from God. That either she's either, you know, God himself, herself, or she's a messenger from God. Theo literally means 
by God or from God in Latin. So, I mean, that, that character has an ectopic pregnancy. And Margot Bamborough, in her rush to get to talk to her friend at the pub, basically says, you really need to take care of this right away and shoes her out of the clinic. Now, we don't know the details of it. Obviously, Margot Bamborough dies that day, and Theodosius, we have to assume, also died soon after from this atopic pregnancy. If Margot Bamborough, though, had done the right thing and insisted on either calling an ambulance or walking Theodosius to where her boyfriend picks her up in the rain and said, we're going to the hospital right now, one, she would have collapsed in the street from the you know, narcotic that she'd been given via the, the Danish or whatever she's given by crazy Janice Beatty. And Janice never would have been able to take her up to the apartment and put her into the, the box, you know, make, her, make her into a pearl. Her name means pearl. And she becomes a pearl inside the cement box. That, inside that oyster, that cement oyster. So everything changes on her relation. And that's almost like, a, in terms of medieval morality play, that's an allegory about this woman having an ectopic pregnancy and dying and a doctor not doing the right thing. If that's the pivot of the books, that end of five and beginning of six, we're going to have to assume that in book 10 or maybe in this, in this last three book series, we don't know really what relationship the last three are going to have with the first seven. But if it turns out that I'm right, that she has PID and it shows itself as an ectopic pregnancy and almost dies, but winds up sterile because of it. That's been nicely foreshadowed with the turn of the story. And the meaning is in the middle with Roland. It's hard to believe that she has this character named God in the center of the book as a throwaway item with an ectopic pregnancy, which is fairly exotic. And then the beginning of the books. And really, the beginning of the books is strikes breakup. I mean, we, we get the... Uh, you know, the, the meeting under Anteros, the statue in Piccadilly Circle. But we also, we have crazy Charlotte Campbell charging out of the office, almost knocking Robin over at the doorway, that liminal point. Because Strike has broken up with her for the first time, which she can't believe. What an affront, you know, that, that the, the beast would, would kick beauty away. Is this, that event turned on her having lied about a child that she had. You know, her mysterious pregnancy and lost child caused Strike to leave her. Now, if Robin is sterile, we're seeing an inversion of that, or it's mirror reflection in his choosing to be with Robin, despite maybe even because she cannot have a child or lost one via ectopic pregnancy and hysterectomy, right? So, we see in the beginning, in the you know, because remember, you know, ring composition, you're really you're looking for inversion as much as you're seeing direct reflection, because reflection in a mirror is inversion. The beginning and the middle suggest that that Robin might be sterile. All right, that that's a big deal, if you understand just how important structure is to roll, and I think. 
you know, she shouldn't be known as JKR in this point, but OCD. I mean, she's consumed by structure. So that we have markers that can be interpreted as pointers to sterility? Yeah, that's, that's a shed point. That's a shed point, all right? So there's a, there's a ring element in play there. But I mean, if, if, there's a, if there's a greater artistry than structure, I'm not sure I'm ready to yield that point, Nick. It, it may be the way that Rowling has set her readers up through Robin's increased tensions consequent to her divorce and her birthday milestones to fret about her future and the question that she has in her mind about children, right? I mean, am I going to have children? Do I want to have children? I mean, do you see what I'm seeing across the series as a kind of foreshadowing of her being unable to have children? I think I do. And, and I think you, you see a marked change in Robin. If you, if you cast your mind back to, to Robin in Cuckoo's Calling, her public face was almost stereotypically feminine. So she was temporary secretary. She's giddy about the fact she was just about to be married. She's buying wedding brochures. <laughs> that's right. That's, that's, right. <laughs> that's, her, that's her, her, her public, her social face. That's what you see. Interior, what you don't see, actually is quite masculine. She's still an accomplished advanced driver. She still holds an ambition to be uh, a private investigator, but all of that is on, on the outside. Fast forward to Ink Black Heart. Wow. <laughs> and you think about wow. Well, the wow moment at the end of Ink Black Heart exactly was right. the sign on the office door, which had the fans going crazy because finally that was recognition of her, the esteem that she was held in as being a private investigator. Her public face now is very much the Artemis Avenger. She, she is the investigator. She is the protector of the week. Her interior. I thought, I thought you were going to talk about, I thought you were going to talk about the, the fight in the house. <laughs> I, I, I mean, forget the window. I was like, man, she is on it. She gets this call from the, the bad guy's younger sister, and man, she is in she, there. Forget I, strike. I'm on my own here, right? I mean, she, she is. Wow. She is. She is the woman of action. That, well, or at least that is her her public face. Her private face is now. She is worrying about the feminine bits. She is. She is worrying huh. about you know what what is going to happen when she is old and alone and. Should she have children? Should she not have children? So that's her trajectory. And I, I think that dichotomy of what Robin's future will hold concerns her. It also concerns us as the fandom. We, we, we are concerned about whether we want her to be this powerful female career woman, whether we want to see her settle down and happily married with children, or, or both. I mean, my secret wish, actually, that has now been blown apart at the end of Running Grave, <laughs> was that Strike and Robin's relationship mutate into a successful and powerful and completely platonic relationship. If you think of Rowling's oldest friend, Sean Harris, so this is, this is the archetype of Ron Weasley um, and his Ford Anglia car. That's a, that is a relationship that, that oh, Rowling has held wow. throughout her life. 
he was also the the military expert that's been credited in many interviews with with helping her plotting the military side of the of the strike novels this is a, a strong relationship that has been entirely platonic that's a tough thing to pull off in the, in a detective novel series <laughs> and i thought i thought maybe maybe rolling might be going for it now we have what is it in effect? Strikes declaration of love at the end of Running Grave. I think I think being shot out of the water. But yeah, absolutely. I I think that the the way the way the story arc of Robin is going, it's going to be a crisis point, and I don't think we know yet which way it's going to go, but but a childless future is is certainly possible. Wow, I that was a lot, Nick. There's a lot in there. That's, that's like that's like a whole other podcast to talk about. But I, just as as the uh, you know the guy with the structural fetish, I want to note that those connections you made between one and six make a lot of sense for a ten book series. Yeah. That basically we see in Ink Black Heart and the way it ends with the doorway and all those things, that's as much a tie to book one as what we see at the end of Strike Seven, where um, you know Robin gets <laughs> in, in in Strike One, Cuckoo's Calling. Um, she does the whole Cupid and Psyche thing where Cupid rescues her from falling down the mountainside, falling down the stairs of the office landing. And we see her thrown down the stairs, basically, in, in uh, Running Grave at the end where she's like, oh, yeah, I love you, dear. And Robin just stumbles out of the office. She's, she's, she's off the cliff at that point. You know, she's totally... That, that's a great 1-7 link. But what you've described is really, you know, that happened in six already. That We had that, the, the doorway is right there, and we see that transformation, um, where the two have almost become opposites to what they were at the beginning of Cuckoo's Call. Wow, I mean, that, that, I mean I'm loving it. That's, 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 that's uh, um, um, you, of course, are deferring to me to, to point out what you've already said. Um, but, yeah, that's all you, Nick. That, I, I didn't see that. That's great. So if we take that, if we take that as, as her chrysalis, the first, first six, first seven books, to become that Artemis, the Avenger goddess, and we, I guess, are more comfortable in that vocation without, without there having to be a motherhood side to Robin's character. But we're also given a boatload of women that are neurotic, even <laughs> yeah. suicidal no, about whoa. fertility issues. Yeah. Yeah, really, this is... I. I list, first of all, hats off to Rowling, because if she is going there and she is going to make Robin this archetypal figure of the, of, of the, uh, the Yorkshire Baroness, a la Lynn Corbett, she's making it very clear that, that most women are not equal to that. That women who don't have children that, you know, are reading Sylvia Plath and boy, did I, 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 I have a, avatar of this of a woman I met my first year at the University of Chicago. I mean, she, she was a poetess that had a whole wall of Sylvia Plath. Those women are, are um, again, to use, to use the N-word here, they're neurotic. Okay? I, I call them in my, in my Substack post the mad mother wannabes of Cormoran Strike. If Rowling is, is going there with this Artemis thing, she's, going to, she's made it very clear that this is a minefield of feminine psychology that Robin is going to have to negotiate. And just, just to throw out a couple of these, 
there's, there's Lady Yvette Bristow in Cuckoo's Calling. She can't have children because her rich husband was sterile. Her brother, you know, says Yvette has always been morbidly maternal. She adores babies. Strike observes, he spoke as though this was faintly disgusting, <laughs> a kind of perversion. She would have been one of those embarrassing women who have 20 children if she could have found a man of sufficient virility. Thank God Alec was sterile. Or hasn't John mentioned that? Okay, so anyway, Yvette, she's rendered effectively sterile if she remained faithful to her husband. So she adopts three children, the oldest of which, her least favorite, murders the other two because she's such a twisted mother. Okay, so that's, that's, that's book one. Which is really kind of, again sort of the foundational crime of the whole thing is 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 the is the mad family that, from which John Bristow springs. The first novel is followed by another woman in the next book. We've talked about this, Elspeth Fancourt, who married a sterile husband. Okay, he's been rendered impotent by a case of the mumps, which again made his first wife effectively barren as well. Now you can say, well, the woman isn't sterile. Well. These women consider themselves sterile, right? She, Elspeth doesn't decide to adopt children as head of that. She decides to become a writer, you know, basically to act out her desire for children in giving birth to characters and stories. She becomes a writer, and when her writing is ridiculed as, as being somehow below standard, she, she dives into her Sylvia Plath thing. You know, she'll be famous forever. And, and, and that first novel was, was the first one conceived in the series, and its foundation crime is that Sylvia Plath copycat death of Elspeth Fancourt. The foundation crime of the first strike novel published, The Murder of Charlie Bristow, is also groundless in the madness of a de facto barren woman. In the story, I don't, I don't want to go into Danny Lang, but you can go there if you want about Danny Lang's background. But in the story, Turn, Lethal White, the foundation crimes are the conception of Rath Chiswell in a pregnancy trap, which leads to the breakup of Sir Jasper's first marriage and the consequent sociopathic behavior of his oldest son, Freddie. That, that young man, you know, crazy Freddie, not only strangles his half-brother in the eye of the Uffington White Horse, but he humiliates the teenage daughter of Della and Geraint Wynne sufficiently that the young woman commits suicide. Della was menopausal by the time of Rhiannon's death, presumably, and Strike reflects on her grieving mom and issues at the meeting. I mean, he, he looks at the large framed photograph of a teenage girl sat on Della's mantelpiece. It occurred to Strike that her mother could not even enjoy the bittersweet solace of looking at Rhiannon win every day. And he found himself filled with inconvenient compassion. What turns him off, though, you know, is, is that the Welsh woman is only speaking to Strike because of her bizarre maternal affections in a way almost incestuous that make everybody who hear the, the recordings, the illegal recordings of her talking with Amir Malik. I mean, she's, she's, she's rescued this young man from the attention of an abusive gay man and from the rejection that, that Malik experiences from his traditional family. She spends a good deal of her time, though, with Strike talking about the other effectively sterile woman in Strike 4 with mother issues, Kinvara Chiswell. She had a stillborn child two years before the action of Lethal White, a death that, given the 30 years age difference between her and her, her seriously elderly husband, caused her to despair of having children. The consensus in the family, 
especially with Izzy, Izzy Chizzy, <laughs> is that the event sent her around the twist. Even if Izzy, Izzy doesn't sympathize with that, she understands that, you know, this mental illness. Wrath those, twist those anxieties of an aging woman into his murderous love affair with her. You know, she's dreaming, obviously, of having kids. The first strike novels and the fourth, then, feature women who cannot have children being near the foundation crimes of the book's plot or the actual murder. And in Lethal White, it's both. In Running Grave, the seven book rings close. Mama Mazu has two children with Papa Jay Ways after the unnatural death of her first child, Dayu. <laughs> but she is still possessed of something of a maternal madness. She takes babies born on Chapman Farm away from their biological mothers in order to care for each herself. You know, she calls herself Mama Mazu when she should be calling herself Grandmama Mazu. Though not childless, she seems to have been driven half mad, both by the death of Dayu, whom she has deified, and by her husband's choosing to sire children in serial fashion with other women in the UHC. Okay, that, that catalog of mad mothers is not, it's not an argument that Robin is sterile. It does demonstrate, though, that the author portrays women who cannot have children as almost by definition unstable, perhaps even dangerous in the way their displacement efforts for the frustrated maternal drives play out. If Robin discovers that in fact she is sterile via the SBD that her rapist gave her or you know, via her hysterectomy, it will not be a condition that Rowling has not prepared her readers for with respect to other characters in that, who are in that position for various reasons a condition unique to women, which the feminine lead in the series will not be expected to shrug off as, oh, hum, I'm not going to have any kids. I mean, after, after the trauma of Ilsa Herbert's miscarriage on Valentine's Day and Troubled Blood, really the precipitating event for that novel's first crisis between Robin and Cormoran, and the anxiety of the lawyer's unexpected pregnancy in Ink Black Heart. You know, she's, she's thinking, am I going to lose this one too? I mean, she's, I mean, she's on edge. I think the line of women with fertility and mental health issues in the novels gives Strikes fans more reason to celebrate the birth of Benjamin Herbert and his baptism in Running Grave, because it seems like Ilsa and, Herber, Ilsa, Ilsa and Nick's marriage is not in a good shape if she loses that baby because they're not going on with these things. There's, I mean, it's, it's that much a forefront issue that women who can't have children or just have issues about not having children with their husband currently, that they're bonkers. That they, they're, they really, they're mentally unstable. That's as kind as you can put that. If Rowling gives us a heroine then that has that condition and is able to deal with it, we know it's not going to be a light matter. And, that's, and that really is a tribute to Rowling's taking this thing seriously. If this were just going to be a, you know, rolling, going on her feminist thing that, or, you know, that she's just going to write this, this barrenness issue as if she doesn't realize that Lynn Corbett probably has some issues if she's made her barrenness that much a focus of her life. She gets that. And she's going to show it in her story so that it's a real thing. J.J. Marsh, in her books, you know, the Beatrice Stubbs book, 
It's an issue, but it's not nearly what it will be if Robin, at this point, we find out that she can't have children. It's going to be a real exploration of the biological elements of psychology, which, if you've been following the news about rolling and transgenderism, is basically her arguing, no, you're not a woman when you say you identify as one, because biologically you can't be. Okay, where does she get that, and why is it so much in the fore of her mind? I think it's because of her, her marriage relationship and because she's done so much research for this thing. It seems a, a real possibility that Robin is, will be sterile in the coming books. Almost every book, then, Nick has a mad mother wannabe in it. If Robin is sterile and she's being presented as in training for the Artemis role, we're definitely getting what her cousin said in full, namely, you seem to be traveling in a direction opposite to the rest of us. And that's, that's just the Strike series. This is Generation 4, right? We're, this, this, we're, gonna, we're gonna wing this thing around here so we can start talking about, uh, you know, that not only do we talk about Lake and Shed, but we talk about Opera Omni. We talk about the whole series. Do we have failed mothers or women who want relationships with men that result in children in her other books? Well, John, starting with the big one, with the Harry Potter series, unsurprisingly, for a series set in a school, there's not a whole host <laughs> of childless women. So, so, but to name two, so we have Minerva McGonagall. Now, she, she was married. She married, uh, and this is extra canonical. I think this, this came out in, in a, a Pottermore yes. essay. Uh, yeah. She married Elphiston Urquhart. Uh, the marriage was cut short. He died died early, and they were only married for three years, and they had no children. But I'm not going to put Minerva down uh, as a baron, as sterile, as a childless woman. I don't know. Are you aware of the film uh, Goodbye, Mr. Chips? I'm not yes. sure how popular. Yeah. There we are. Yeah. So, so Mr. Chips as an old man was asked do you ever regret not having children and being being the longtime schoolmaster he said what do you mean i had thousands of them so no i think i think minerva very much is a maternal figure almost um strikes conversation with aunt joan yes where the the uh, card reader says you'll never have children Strike immediately responds, she got that wrong, didn't she? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm tearing up just because that's, that's such a moving moment, but that's a Mr. Chips moment. Like, you know, oh, what are you talking about? <laughs> Wonderful. Excuse me perhaps, for interrupting. Perhaps, no, not at all. I mean, we have, we have Bellatrix Lestrange, who fits, fits both a uh, failed mum uh, and a pregnancy trapper because ah. she was, she was <laughs> married to um, Rodolphus Lestrange. Uh, without issue within the Harry Potter series and then we find out many years later thanks to the cursed child that she <laughs> did have a child with uh, Voldemort himself Woo. and then the big one so the big one for me is Merope Gaunt so the foundational crime of the Harry Potter series was Merope's effective rape of Tom Riddle. Whoa. Using the R word. Well, okay. 
I don't know. I don't know how else you can put it. So no, it was under the very... under the under the influence of magic, and we know how that happened. It it resulted in Merope's early death, post postnatal, and of course the creation of the psychotic Voldemort. And that I think is mirrored um, quite closely in Casual Vacancy. Really? Yeah. Really? <laughs> wait, wait a minute. So. So we think of the Voldemort in, or I think of the Voldemort in Casual Vacancy, uh, is Fats, is Stuart Wolf. He is yeah, he is no. a psychotic, a psychotic character oh, in oh, the book. Oh, of the, of so many of the so many human faults that people have in that book, almost all of them are caused through human frailties. Through through inattention, through carelessness, through lack of responsibility, except for Fats. Fats is is truly psychotic, in that he either doesn't realise or doesn't care about the effect that he is having on society around him because he's living inside his own head. Now, Stuart wasn't the natural child of Tessa and Colin. He was adopted. Just like with Merope and Riddle, Cubby, Colin, Colin Wall, did not want that adopted child. He felt he was too mentally unwell to be able to cope with him. And Tessa pressured, manipulated him to lie to the social workers to pretend he was well so that they could adopt Fats, to, to the extent that Colin attempted to commit suicide the very first night that Fats was was in the house. Wow. That that that, that Voldemort wall stack well, that that is that is a keeper. That is fantastic. Well well hat, one hat off here. It it hat is of course it is of course a much more mature book than the Harry Potter series. And and one of the nice things is just that there is just a glimmer at the end of a possible redemption to Fats because of, of all the terrible things that he's done actually again it is a, the mother's love it is Tessa's tough love that forces Fats just just at that point at the end of the novel to start living outside his own head and realise truly realise what he has done Voldemort of course is never given that opportunity yeah well to, again your analogy it's not the, the mother's tough love is important. She makes him look it right in the face, but his adoptive father shows tremendous sympathy yeah. and protectiveness around him. Again, you're seeing these mother and father conventional roles flipped, and yet they they have the desired effect of bringing him to something like repentance. Um, not quite honesty. I think he claims to have written all of the ghosts of. of yes. Um, so he's he's overshot to a bit. So he, there is there's there's some acceptance of responsibility, and he's overshot a bit. Quite a clear cut at the end of the novel, but he thinks he's responsible for everything. But that mad mother piece, that's the keeper there, with the coercive love. Whoa, yeah. that's 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 a thing. Okay. Um, is, is that the end? Well, we have crystal. Go on. So we have we have crystal again again with with fats. 
and so so she's trying to lay a pregnancy trap on fats and i think for similar reasons that leader attempted to put the the pregnancy trap on johnny rokeby not that crystal thinks that fats is in any way gonna look after her or stay with her but she can see the route to that council flat to the refrigerator to the possibility of having custody of her brother because she doesn't think that Tessa and Colin will abandon their grandchild. Smart woman, Crystal. Yeah. I think I, it, it, you, you pinned it. You pinned it. So all you've left out of these, you know, women that use entrapment. Um, you talked about Crystal Whedon, Marofi Gaunt, Philatrix was strange. You talked about the Wall family. Talked about Lita Strike. Similar women are Sarah Shadlock. Yep. who has, has, has played a long game to win her man. I mean, we're talking about what? More than, I mean, since she was in college, so we're talking about Stacey's 20, and now they're in their 30s. She, she, she carried that torch for 10 years to include stringing a man along as her fiancé. So this is a woman who really has a plan about how the rest of her life is going to go with that baby. Then there's Janice Beatty, <laughs> and Janice, she tried to win a man. She has a child, and he's he's like, you know, good on you, Janice. I, I don't want anything to do with it. He's, you know, absentee parent. Uh, he he does he refuses to be caught in her. No doubt that sends her around. Then there's Belinda Watkins in Running Great, where Bijou. Uh, I mean. I looked up Bijou to see what it means. Apparently, in the UK, that's also used for uh, uh, as a term of derision for bourgeoisie people. Or bougie, I think Robin calls her bougie. Bougie, yeah. Bougie, Robin calls her bougie. She's clearly got her bourgeoisie concerns about having a, a husband, their child, and I think she's self-aware enough to know that men don't. Outside of her, you know, oversized breasts that are surgically enhanced, which speaks to her again her insecurities that she can't win a man for who she is, and so she's dedicated to you know making that barrister maybe jealous be a strike or maybe getting a child through strike. And I, I I'm get I, I've you know you've told me Nick that you know. There's, there's serious objections to the idea that this is Strike's child, but um, she clearly considered that a possibility. I, I frankly think that, yes, she could be carrying Strike's child because it would be her first child that we know of and that she wouldn't show her pregnancy, probably if she's like my wife was, who, who had her first pregnancy when she was 33, she wouldn't sew until she was in her sixth or seventh month. So the fact that it's four months or whatever, I, I don't see that as a real objection. But <laughs> that so I mean, look, Crystal Whedon, Ropey Gaunt, the, the Walls, Bellatrix the Strange, Lady Strikes, Sarah Shadlock, Dennis Beatty, Belinda Watkins. I mean, we're seeing a lot of that's a lot, right? Yeah, you know, this, this goes right. And, and we haven't talked about I, 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 Lana Whitehood. The, the, the specter of Lana Whitehood is saying, John, you've forgotten the Ichabog. Um, where we have the bizarre pregnancy 
of the Ichabod. You know, there's, there's, there's a problem there, right? The, the, the child takes on the nature of its relationships with the world in, in what kind of person the child becomes. And that, that takes further unpacking. And yes, Lana, I need to read that book again. But it, we see then a thread through all of Rowling's work. Pregnancy traps, coercive pregnancies, you know, psychotics born of this kind of thing. What, what are you seeing in that about Robin? All right, these, these are failed mothers and women who want relationship with men that result in children. Not a real positive presentation there. You know, these women are all somehow women who can't imagine their lives without a man or a children. Now, Crystal, as you said, is kind of a problematic thing there. She, she's, she's really indifferent to the actual baby, you know, and being a mother. But she's already a mother, I guess, to her younger brother, so she doesn't feel that. I, I, I get it. Okay. This is, this, is a, uh, um, this is an issue. This is something that Rowling is really exploring. And I think we can say that the, the idea that Robin is sterile fits with this because it will induce, do I dare use that word? It will induce a discussion about just this kind of thing, about a woman and children and what kind of person they are mentally and what kind of relationship they have with men consequent to that. That seems to be a large, consistent story element. Did we mention Fantastic Beasts? That's the only thing that we missed. Oh, yeah, Black, no, Fantastic Beasts. Um, I'll leave it to our listeners to come up with a Fantastic Beasts parallel there, you know. Uh, we do have all the orphans and, and the crazy mother who's the head of the orphan, uh, the bare bones orphanage. Yeah, but I recommend you go there if you want to start mining this. Oh, oh, there's another one. There's another one, Nick. You were talking about this earlier. We have the... Uh, we have Queenie Goldstein ah, yeah. give the love potion to Jacob. Ah. Now, I mean, you qualified that as rape with <laughs> with uh, Maropi Gaunt and Tom Riddle Sr. The only thing that that's different about the Jacob and Queenie relationship is that she lets him off the hook before conception. That's that's really a a, a coerced relationship that looks like a disaster, but that Queenie is willing to go there. Queenie is willing to go there because her beloved isn't willing to break the taboos of their being in relationship. So yeah, I think we, I think we pretty much have it across the board. Women wanting relationships with men turning on children and force and what that means. All right, I, that that gives us an opera omnia entry point to Robin being sterile because that's something that Rowling is going to want to explore straight up. You know how what will Robin and Corman's relationship be if she doesn't have children? One, I think it's going to be great because he thinks of Aunt Joan as his mother, right? I mean, this he. He's not uncomfortable with that. Though I have to think that Robin's going to be a very different woman than Aunt Joan was. His role model is Uncle Ted, who is 
is married to a woman who has no children, per se, you know, as, as, a, as a birth mother. And he understands that his mother, Lita, his biological mother, was not really a very good mother. You know, and, and that she may have been caught in a pregnancy trap herself by her, her, her last husband. Um, Strike, Strike may think this is just great that she doesn't have children because he's used to thinking himself in that role as like Uncle Ted, not like Lita's husband. The large view of all of Rowling's work gives us a pretty good segue to the idea that Robin is sterile. So let's draw the line here. Let's sum this up. Nick, can you, would you, how much money would you put on the bet that Robin turns out to be sterile? Would you mortgage the house to get more money no. to place on the bet? <laughs> I wouldn't, I wouldn't even put it on Evans money. Oh, <laughs> well, once again, Nick, we agree completely. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I mean, people, people get upset about this theory, but Look, I've been I've been following Rowling's writing for 20 years. I, I cut my teeth as a Potter pioneer, right? And it was all about speculation. And I'll tell you, really, with you know, the exceptions are very notable because they are very few uh, people that called what was going to happen inside these books, those books, and they're going to be just as exceptional and just as few going forward with the strike series. If you think you know where they're going because you understand her feminist agenda or you you understand you have a you have a, a gut feeling of what will and won't happen because of your you know your imaginative relationship with these characters. Well, who was the um, Emerson? Emerson Sparks, you know? What was his favorite word? I think it was deluded. You know, Nick and I love talking about these things about Charlotte's supposed suicide, you know, her likely murder. Um, and we love talking about the possibility of, you know, how Robin becomes sterile, ectopic pregnancy, or is it just PID straight up? You know, I mean, I mean, we love talking about this stuff, but I hope you get that we're really not attached to this theory because that really is a fool's game, right? If you're looking to make accurate predictions, look at those Twitter headers because that's really the only place you're really getting a, a, a bona fide clue as to what's going to happen. The point of this, these conversations is to highlight how you read a book, how you read an author, right? You got to know the lake material. Rowling's told us, he's given us the playbook. You got to read the, you know, you, you got to read the biography. You got you to know her core beliefs. You got to know her core issues. You got to know her skills. He mentions that she's an astrologer. That's an important thing to know, right? And you got to know that, you know, she's got daddy issues. And daddy's name was Peter. You know, I mean, those things, you just, you have to know them. Well, for me, for me, it's, it's peeking behind the curtain. I don't think you have to do it. I don't think it's necessary for you to do it. But it's an awful lot of fun. And certainly speaking personally, I get a lot more out of the work when we do that. Okay, that's the point to me. It's just gossip until you realize that she takes this unformed material out of her lake, which she describes as something like molten glass, and she takes it into the shed. I'm, I'm, I'm supposed to be the shed guy here. 
if you want to understand the genius of the shed, it's seeing what she's made of this very specific and individual inspiration and turned it into archetypal story, universal story, story which transcends her individual condition. That artistry, you know, the alchemy, the ring composition, the mythology, the literary illusion, I mean, all of that, do you really have an appreciation of that until you understand the starting point and what she's made of it? I don't think so. I don't think so. I think really to have a full shed appreciation, you got to understand what came out of the lake. Right? And, and it's not just, a, a, you know, yeah, there's a personal thing. You feel like you know the author better. But for me, the old shed guy, I think that the, the value of, of, of the lake evidence is it gives you a much finer appreciation and, and, and reason to admire her as an accomplished artist. Really, a woman, I mean, C.S. Lewis said that Charles Williams was going to give his name to the historical period in which he wrote, that they'll talk about the age of Williams, the way they talk about the age of Shakespeare. So far, it's looking a lot better for James Joyce and Proust and company than Charles Williams, but, you know, maybe he's right. Hard to believe that, just on current evidence, that this won't be known as the age of J.K. Rowling, and that won't be testimony to being, it being a bad age, you know, a thin period of just popular novels. Um, I, I, I admire Stephanie Meyer. I admire Suzanne Collins. I admire, you know, a lot of current writers. Nobody owns the scene like Charles Dickens did, um, or the way Joyce did, or Nabokov did, the way Rowling does today. And it's not because um, people just don't understand great literature. They're having these imaginative experiences which speak to a remarkable artistry. And we're at that period in her life where she's really got about 20 works out there of substance. Some collaborative, the great majority of it being unique to her. And that allows us to start talking about the work as a whole, all right? So the so what is that in terms of, you know, her, her Robin being sterile? No. You know, I, I, I wouldn't bet the cost of a good lunch in Oklahoma City that Rowling is definitely, you know, going there with this. I don't know what kind of odds I'd have to get before I would put serious money down. You know, if I, if I put down 50 bucks and it's 10 to 1, I might put down 50 bucks at 10 to 1, you know, but, but not, not 1 to 1, not straight up, not even money. And that's the value, though, of what we're doing is that this kind of discussion gives us the material and the opportunity to illustrate lake and shed thinking to include a lot of the symbolism. You know, you know, the archetypal stuff, um, you know, the, the perennial material inside these things, which is, in this book, largely baked into the mythology. That, um, that opportunity, how can you pass that up? Otherwise, you're just going to be sitting here twiddling your thumbs talking about, you know, um, what did Robin think when, when, Gray, when, when Strike told her that his ex-lover got it right when, he, when she thought that he, she, he was in love with his partner. I mean, talk about the most indirect way of saying, Robin, dear, I love you madly. You know, that, that's, that's, he's not going there. He's still the Sagittarian. But that, uh, you, you can spend your time trying to get inside these characters' heads, pretending that they're real people, 
or you can step back and say, let's talk about Rowling's artistry, right? Let's talk about the tools in the shed. Let's talk about the issues in the lake. Let's talk about the patterns we see from her previous work. That's what serious readers are doing today. And that's what serious readers are going to be doing with rolling studies going forward, you know, until the Lord comes. Is it, I think it's going to be this 4G experience. That's, that's what we're after here. Am I wrong, Nick? Is that, I mean, that's what we're trying to do, isn't it? I, I think you're right, John. I think you're right. As, as I said, I don't think it's necessary, but I think if you, if you try it, and if you study it, I think you get an awful lot more out of the work. All right. What's our next show? <laughs> we're, we're done, right? Robin Sterl, who cares? Uh, we've, we've, given it a good, we've given it a good exploration. Uh, you can go to the Substack thing if you want to read more about what I wrote about this. The next show, I've, I've got two ideas. I don't, think, I, I don't even think I've discussed this one with you, Nick, so forgive me. If, if, you know, um, I think we might you know, ask some uh, friends on that to talk about their work and this generational theory you know i, I mentioned b groves is kind of the the um, avatar of generation hex and what they bring to the series i'm not sure b will embrace that role but um lana whited she you know she and Catherine grimes th th this new book that is just coming out i think this month a couple of weeks maybe next week um, the, you know, the new Ivory Tower book, um, looking at, and it looks at rolling across, looks at Rowling's works across the board. I, I, I contributed an essay about um, Cormoran Strike. Um, there's, there's a, Lana is deservedly proud, not only of the work that she did, that really started the, the serious academic aspects of the Potter Pioneer stage. Um, that book was the you know a, a defining book of that first period, and now I think she's writing a defining book of the fourth generation, and I've got some misgivings about that book that, that I, I know will make for a lively conversation because, you know, Lana White can give as good as she gets. <laughs> I mean, there's no way I'm going to be accused of being a bully with Lana White in the room. You know, it's going to be. It, I hope I can convince her to have that conversation. But anyway, we should we should talk a little bit more about that. And if that fails, if all these people say no, John, you're you're. I love Nick to death, but you're a nutter, and I can't trust myself to be on a show with you. Then I think I'm going to talk about something completely different. I, I'd like to take a deep dive into a feminist art critic, really a literary critic too, whom Rowling has never mentioned by name but who may be the key to unlocking her seemingly contradictory views about an immortal soul, about transgenderism, about abortion, uh, same-sex relationships, pornography, you know. And that, when we go there, I'll have to write that, I may have to write that up first. That promises to be our most challenging discussion yet. Because there's nothing that this feminist critic says that is not provocative. I mean, she, she is there to tee everybody off and succeeds mightily. So anyway, that's, that's that. Um, Nick, what do we want our listeners to do now? Right. Well, stay tuned. So you will, <laughs> whatever our next subject's going to be, you're going to find out about it in a fortnight or two weeks' time. If you are listening to this podcast on Apple Podcasts and you've enjoyed it, please do leave us a review. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts and you haven't enjoyed it, 
please don't leave us a review, but leave your questions and or complaints at the Rolling Studies website. <laughs> <laughs>